The CFB Winning Edge podcast is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Bowl season is here. The coaching carousel is in full swing. The transfer portal is bigger than ever. And we're excited to dive into our preparations for 2022. But we'd also like to offer a sincere thank you to everyone who signed up this year at patreon.com slash CFB Winning Edge. Whether you join Tier 1 for a single month or have been a Tier 3 member for years, your contribution helps keep us up and running and funds updates and new features. We smashed our previous records in 2021, both in terms of members and funds, and plan to invest that support into future projects to provide more value to listeners, readers, and subscribers in 2021 and beyond. Thank you for making 2021 our most successful season yet, and for helping pave the road to an even better 2022. Welcome back, everybody. It's the best time of the year. Everybody knows what that is. It's bowl season, and the CFB Winning Edge podcast is here to go over it uh, for a second episode. Uh, Last week, we covered the bowls for a week. We're going to do the same here. So uh, strap in, get ready. Uh, We are going to be talking for a while about these bowls, but Nick, uh, the owner and proprietor of CFB Winning Edge, follow him on the Twitter, at CFB Winning Edge, Xavier Trish, at Xavier underscore Trish, T-R-I-C-H-E. Uh, for, uh, here with me, Scott Bogman, talking about these bowl games here. We got so much news to cover, but the biggest thing I think leaping off the page uh, is the COVID stuff going on at Texas A&M. They are out for the Gator Bowl. Uh, it doesn't look like this game is going to get played, but they're not going to cancel it because if another game has COVID issues, then the opponent without the COVID issues would go and play Wake Forest who was supposed to be Texas A&M's opponent. So if Wake Forest is going to get to play in a bowl game, it will be because another bowl game gets canceled because of COVID. So it's leaving us up in a little bit of limbo here, Nick, but uh, COVID, of course, moving things around here in 2020, uh, in 2021, as it did in 2020 as well. For sure. And things are changing. I mean, we're recording Wednesday, uh, midday here for me on the, the West Coast afternoon for uh, most everyone else. Um, but things are changing by the minute, basically. And so the last thing I saw uh, was that apparently the Gator Bowl is looking to potentially uh, get a team that went five and seven and did not was not uh, at the time bowl eligible, able to play. There seemed to be some rumors. I know a team. <laughs> well, that uh, so so first, everyone made the Bishop Sycamore uh, joke, uh, and then second, uh, did see some some things about Texas that yeah. Oh, I'm do. sure if they played in that uh, game, there would be no mean memes <laughs> out there. So you know, uh, but then you know, most recently there seems to you know maybe Cal is a is an option. Uh, could be a couple others out there, but. Uh, you know, how many teams, one, no team that didn't qualify for a bowl is practicing. So we're. Right. Uh, I mean, you have to bring them all together and who knows how many of those kids have COVID. Well, sure. And and so the other, the other thing that could help, and I guess this maybe makes 
Cal, uh, maybe a better fit than some, who's in school right now? And so you kind of have to go school by school because a lot of these teams will have broken not just team activities, but if you know finals have already gone through and, and all of that, uh, they're probably at home or, or you know uh, spread out all over. Um, so if there were a program where uh, you know the academic calendar went farther into the month of December, then maybe you have a better chance that everybody's still on campus you might be able to get together and only have a few days basically to prepare until it's time to, to travel out there uh for the game but you know it, it would be a a big big disappointment for wake forest coming off of uh really an incredible season to not have an opportunity to kind of celebrate that with a bowl game uh, certainly hope that you know, this is uh, an, an isolated incident as far as a team not being able to go, but things aren't aren't trending, you know, in a, in a very good direction right now. I mean, you mentioned maybe another team uh, or another bowl could be impacted, and that might uh, give us another matchup. I know that. I mean, that's uh, what I read. I I didn't know that they could dip down to a five and seven team because I read that it would have to be another bowl eligible team, but I don't know if things could change to get the game in. I have no idea what the rules are. So, right. And it's, and like I said, it's, I mean, it's changing a ton, but then there are, there've been reports of other teams dealing with COVID issues. I mean, Miami, uh, I, I saw on Tuesday had a significant number of cases that uh, could potentially put their Sun Bowl matchup with Washington State in jeopardy. Uh, Alabama's offensive coordinator, Bill O'Brien, offensive line coach, Doug Maroney, uh, have tested positive. Uh, Georgia's potentially uh, starting quarterback, certainly uh, a quarterback that would would be in the mix to play in the uh, semifinal game against Michigan. JT Daniels has tested positive. There have been some other reports of other uh, players potentially being impacted there. And then not long before we started recording, the college football playoff itself announced that uh, they you know, will be going with the policy of if a team is unable to play due to COVID, that includes the national championship game, uh, that team would have to forfeit. So, you know, it, it went, this is all accelerated quite quickly. Obviously, other sports have been dealing with uh, an increase in cases with college football, we've been pretty fortunate all year to not have a, a whole lot of impacts. There's really only been one game, that USC Cal game, and and that was kind of chalked up to some uh, local restrictions in Berkeley, California. Um, they were able to, to reschedule that. We didn't have to deal with a forfeit um, during the season, but I mean, it, it's it's starting to look a lot like 2020 with dozens of guys potentially not being able to play in a bowl game if the team at all is able to, to take the field. So uh, things will, I'm sure, change by the time we finish recording. They might change again by the time uh, you're out there listening to this. So if this is completely out of date in a, in a few hours <laughs> or a day, you know, sorry about that. But this, this is something right. that is evolving very, very quickly. Yeah, Xavier, I mean, just COVID impacting everything. It's just Unfortunately, it's part of the new norm, it seems, uh, moving forward here, is that, uh, you know, it may not be as bad earlier in the season, but right. it's going to be a lot like flu season moving forward. But, uh, you know, because it's deadly, uh, it's harder to adjust and move things around. So lots of stuff getting moved right now. 
Yeah, and it sucks because obviously you want this is the best time of the year for college football fans. You want to watch bowl games. You want to have a bowl game at two, three, six, and seven. Like these are the things that you want on a, on a Wednesday, uh, like today, like we're recording. But you know, more importantly, people's health comes first, and if bowl games have to be postponed or, or in this case, canceled. Then they have to. You know, there's just there's just a priority system that we have to have here. That yeah, these bowls, you know, uh, will be impacted, but ultimately keeping these players healthy, um, and obviously their surrounding families healthy as well. I was talking to a couple of friends about it literally right before we started the podcast, and I was like, if I'm a college student at either Georgia, Michigan, Cincinnati, or Alabama, leaving campus right now is probably not going to happen. Probably not going to see my my family for Christmas. Probably not going to see anybody for a while. Um, I can only imagine the mental toll that takes already when you've been through a long school year, just got done with finals and stuff like that. And then all of a sudden, probably there's going to be a mandate on you staying on campus so they can make sure that they monitor your health and, you know, your health and wellness and you don't go home and catch it from an auntie or an uncle on Christmas Day. So, yeah, I I feel bad for the players in that regard as well, because that's really just a, uh, a tough situation to be in. I wonder if any other schools do it for bowl games. I doubt it. But honestly, you wouldn't be I, I, you can't be too surprised about it. You know, a lot of these bowl games, especially for a lot of these mid-major schools, are, are, are big money games or, or opportunities to get national exposure. So it, it would be, you know, tough for them to even decide to allow their players to go home for Christmas and, and things of that nature. Um, you know, uh, I had to get COVID tested because obviously I'm going to cover the Camellia Bowl on Christmas Day for Georgia State and having to go through that whole process of just media. Uh, they blocked down media for the uh, national championship games and for the CFB playoff. Uh, they, they, you know, all that would be done virtually. So there's not going to be, you know, uh, media members. So that's going to be weird. Um, I wonder how they handle the whole fan situation uh, as, as we get closer and closer to, to it. I wouldn't be surprised if we see 30 percent capacity, you know, maybe 50% capacity tops for those who have vaccination cards and stuff like that, to be perfectly honest with you, just because at the end of the day, uh, as much as college football is about the fans, they're going to want the games to happen themselves anyways. Um, so I, I feel for, for what's going on right now, and, and it sucks, uh, I think, you know, universally right now for everybody, players, fans, coaches, and everybody in between. Yeah, I mean, it's not fun. And uh, dealing with all this stuff, I mean – this one's at Lucas Oil Stadium. I was going to say, because if it was in Dallas again, I, I think it'd be 100%. So, but uh, Lucas Oil Stadium, who knows? Uh, that's Indianapolis, uh, how many people there will be this year. So, um, we do have uh, a couple of, you know, transfer news and, and some coaching changes. Well, I think the only coaching thing was Temple named Stan Drayton, their new head coach. And, doesn't that wrap it up for coaching hires for right now until somebody screws something up, Nick? <laughs> for now, for now, uh, there's, you know, there there could be something that happened in a bowl game or, or after a bowl game uh, that could lead to another opening. There's maybe, you know, an NFL uh, opportunity for someone who knows that could get things up and, and running again if a, a big time job opens because somebody jumped up to the NFL. Uh, I haven't heard a whole lot of college uh, coaches being linked to potential NFL jobs, but I know, you know, regular season, of course, still going on. So uh, maybe we don't know every job that'll be open at that level quite yet. But uh, yeah, as of right now, barring any late changes, any uh, weird things happening in the spring, unforeseen uh, reasons a, a job might open, we're currently done with uh, FBS head coach uh, the head coaching carousel. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to 
getting now all the coordinators settled, all the uh, staffs filled out, because I've mentioned before, one of the things I'm looking forward to diving into a little bit more during the offseason is, uh, you know, coaching history and, and things like that, drilling down a little more uh, than we have in the past for our coach ratings. But uh, yeah, not a bad thing. But right after we finished last week, yeah, as you mentioned, uh, Texas assistant Stan Drayton hired by Temple. And that, as of right now, is uh, sort of the end of the, the head coaching movement. If there's anyone that doesn't want any more coaching changes, it's Nick, right? You, you're like, look, let's just get this done so I don't have to reinstall any more of these things. I, I'm absolutely with you. Hopefully there's no less miles uh, this offseason, but, of course, no promises. So uh, we'll see. The more interesting stuff to me, um, all of the – transfer news i mean shamir gibbs going to alabama being probably one of the biggest ones i mean uh, for us cff nerds he just moves up to a first round pick i mean uh he is going to be outstanding there uh, bone nicks going to oregon keaton slovis uh going to Pitt. i don't even know i i can't even remember did we we covered spencer rattler going to south carolina last week right so yeah. um still a ton of moving and shaking i know that Dabo called it what did he call it uh uh, he described the transfer portal as complete chaos or something or utter chaos right now. Um, transfer portal is there's a lot. I actually talked to my, my buddy's son is a college uh, football player, and I talked to him about the transfer portal. And he was like, well, you know, there's more kids in the transfer portal right now that, uh, you know, are higher profile than him. So he's not going to go because he's going to be wait. He'd be waiting half the year to get a team. So uh, it's just. It's becoming a, a lot, and if there's anyone I don't need to tell that to, it is Nick, uh, who is moving these players around to different teams in the offseason. So, like you said uh, before, uh, for college football, it's a great thing and a terrible thing. For you, I, uh, it just makes you have way more work, I feel like, right now. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a lot to keep up with, but uh, in our FBS team profiles, we do have a running list of transfer updates. Those are um, the the biggest names, guys who've been on-field contributors, uh, highly rated recruits who leave after the first year or two, uh, or if there's a significant move of uh, you know from one team to another. We do put when guys like you know Northern Illinois is running back. Uh, Jay Ducker entered the transfer portal. Do make a note of that because he was, uh, what, a thousand-yard rusher. So uh, that might be of, of more interest than Liberty's backup center. Uh, but in the team sheet, I will, of course, <laughs> track Liberty's backup <laughs> center, Eastern Michigan's uh, third-string quarterback, whatever, you know. So uh, do try to, to uh, keep track of it all. Do try to put all the biggest – uh, names and, and most important moves um, in an easy to find place. So you don't have to go team by team, but it's, yeah, I mean, I, I spend a chunk of my day basically out of every hour. I'll probably spend, uh, you know, 45 minutes going through and, and making some updates team by team on production points and uh, starting to, to change over Um uh, you know, add up the games played, games started, looking through snap count, step charts, all that good stuff. Try to try to get those uh, team profiles themselves as perfect as possible at the end of the season. Um, but then the last 15 minutes of that hour, 
I'm scrolling through Twitter and, and looking at all the uh, transfer <laughs> portal updates, sending myself uh, uh, emails to then go back and make those changes, uh, whether it's team by team or, or on the master list or, or what have you. So it, yeah, it takes up a chunk of, uh, of the time, but it's something that really drives the work that, that we do. And, and I think it's right. helpful to people who uh, are looking for that specific amount of information all in one place. It's kind of uh, the nature about. of the beast, I guess. Oh, for yeah, sure. Yeah. And, and it's always something to talk about too. It's, it's yeah. And it's, it's more important now than ever. I mean, you know, every day you hear uh, that there are a thousand guys in the transfer portal or, you know, it's, it's hundreds more than it was this time last year and, and all of that. And I'm, you know, flashing forward in my mind to the spring and when we're, or, you know, in, in the summer when we're starting to uh, talk more traditional previews and, and that type of thing that, I mean, these, these teams, these rosters are going to look so different and, and I bet it's going to feel so much different than it has in years past when we talk about things like returning production when we talk about uh because because one of the things that that is a little new not completely new but i feel like we're seeing it more uh this year than than years past i mean i mentioned i mentioned ducker uh jacob cowing thousand yard receiver from utep is entering the transfer portal and and so you know guys at the the group of five level i feel like we're seeing more you know star players or at least star in their uh, on their team in their conference taking that potential step up to a power five program or, or uh, you know blue blood program things like that uh, we've seen for years and years things move in the other direction guys who are pretty highly rated coming out of high school maybe don't get a chance to play step down and and you know we've we've seen some quarterbacks here and there that move the other way and, and some, some players uh, a bit, but it, it seems like, you know, not quite, not quite half, but maybe a third, something like that. Uh, just, just on my very, you know, casual look uh, through the list of, of uh, the most recent moves are now, you know, guys moving from the group of five who've, who've put together a resume of sorts to say, Hey, you know, maybe maybe my talent level is a little bit higher than it was coming out of high school now, or, or my level of production uh, is up to the point where, hey, give me give me a shot at at a uh, you know a bigger school, a bigger uh, stage, so that I can uh, have more of an opportunity to to make the best case to be a higher NFL draft pick or get a shot in the NFL. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, it's it's just it is interesting. It's a lot to keep up with, but it's also part of the way we designed what we do. And, and so, you know, it's important to, to track it all and, and uh, try to get it as correct as we can. And Xavier, your thoughts on the transfer portal and uh, any of these landing spots. You like Slovis? Love Slovis at Pitt. Yeah. Well, how about Bowden? Yeah. Morgan? That's an interesting one too. I thought that was very hilarious to me. I laughed really hard when it happened <laughs> really? because yeah, well, uh, well, landings coached against him for the last three years. You know, like this or last two years. So he's been able to see Bo Nix at his best and when he plays Georgia at his worst. So like for him to then have to bring in Bo Nix was was was, was funny to me. The weirdest one I think for me has been Harrison Bailey going to Stephen F. Austin. Uh that was just uh just out of nowhere, kind of just wasn't expecting that whatsoever. 
Was it was it Harrison Bailey that went to Stephen F. Austin? Um, no, somebody committed to Stephen F. Austin today. Though. Mauer. The, uh, thank you. Mauer. It was Brett Mauer. It was Brendan Mauer. Different thank Tennessee. you. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah, but uh, sorry, that was probably the most surprising thing for me. Um, I was trying to figure out if Stephen F. Austin had like a uh, had like a quarterback guru type situation going on over there. <laughs> uh, somebody asked me. They were like. Yeah, I had a, a friend of mine ask me to go like, hey, is like Stephen F. Austin running like a Houston Baptist type offense? I was like, I don't think so. But I'll ask Nick because if anybody will know, right, be right. Nick, because he, he would come in and be like, guys, you got to check out what Stephen F. Austin is doing. It's revolutionizing what they do in the passing game. Like he was doing with Houston Baptist like a year ago. I think my favorite so far is probably Michael Penix going to Washington. Um, for me, I think yeah. that is my favorite move. Um, you guys know how much I felt like Washington is, was a quarterback away in, in our preseason projections um, and talking about them last year. Um, and I think that Michael Penix, at the very least, gives them an upgrade in the athlete department at the quarterback position. Let's see what he's able to do in the Pac-12 system. But at least as an athlete, he's he's by far a better athlete than Dylan, than Dylan Morris is. Um, and I think he has a better arm. Let's see if he can put all that talent together for one season like he kind of did uh, in the shortened season at Indiana. Yeah, some of these moves are very interesting, but uh, but I mean, a lot of them, like I think the Bo Nix going to Oregon one, and uh, like you said, I I feel like it's a positive for Lanning to want him after seeing him, as you mentioned. It's not something that I thought about before, but I mean, after seeing him play uh, a couple seasons and wanting him to come over, you know there's got to be a little silver lining. I also think for his NFL future, you get out of the SEC, you play Pac-12 defenses more a little bit too. So, um, with his athleticism, yeah, absolutely. I think right, yeah, especially it, it, and it's in. I think especially with what they had in Anthony Brown last year, I think this could easily be just a linear move offensively. What they think about going into next year, watching a lot of what they did with Anthony Brown, will probably what they do with Bo Nix, and I think Bo Nix. And all of my, you know, crapping on him, I think he's a better passer than what Anthony Brown is. So I think he has yeah. a little bit more of a ceiling than what they'll be than what they'll be able to do offensively. Uh, with, with what they were able to do offensively, excuse me, with Anthony Brown, I think they'll be able to do more with Bo Nix at the quarterback position. Um, now, Nick, tell me, I don't know, and I don't know if everybody has declared already, but the chances that Verdell comes back for next season are what would you give them in a percentage? Because um, I was thinking if he has his full complement of running backs as well, I think that also helps too. Uh, so Verdell does have another year of eligibility after, right. after this year, if he takes it, I, uh, I have not heard anything. We do track, mm -hmm. uh, if a guy has officially declared for the NFL draft, he's now highlighted in a dark blue color in the, uh, team profiles. Um, so I haven't heard specifically about Verdell. He, he, he could come back and coming off an injury, I guess there's always a little bit, you know, uh, potential uh, a higher chance that that he could come back because you'd want to be fully healthy or show show you're right. fully healthy. Um, but an interesting point I think on Nick's specifically, um, the offensive coordinator, new new offensive coordinator at Oregon, Kenny Dillingham, was at Auburn. Uh, three years ago. So when mm, Onyx was yeah. a true freshman, he was the offensive coordinator at Auburn, uh, was the play caller there, hasn't been the play caller the last couple of years at Florida State, but I do believe he's going to be the play caller at Oregon. So there is a relationship there. Um, okay. Also, Nick's being a five-star recruit coming out of high school. You know, obviously there are some cases where guys are overrated, but, you know, from a pure talent standpoint, 
uh, he's got it. And, and you mentioned athleticism. I think that's certainly something you mentioned, uh, his throwing ability. I agree that he's probably uh, a little bit better, uh, passer than Anthony Brown, at least a little more consistent, which is kind of weird to say, because we've talked about <laughs> Bo Nix's inconsistency yeah. a lot, but, um, you know, it, it there's, there's, a, a, there's a reason guys are five stars and, and certainly guys do, uh, disappoint from time to time and don't quite live up to that level of, uh, you know, potential, I guess. Um, but there's, there's still, I think a chance you go, you get a new, uh, system, a change of scenery. Uh, I, I kind of like it. It was a surprising move. I did not, you could have given me 130 guesses and Oregon would have been probably triple digits as far as, uh, <laughs> where I would have guessed, but you know, it's, it's interesting. It's an interesting move. And, and, um, we, we will see how it plays out. I was a little bit surprised because Ty Thompson is a, is a, you know, if not a five-star, a, a really, really high four-star, uh, was a 98, uh, rated recruit, uh, in the two, four, seven composite. So that's, that's right. Sort of on the line. Um, but you know, really, really highly rated guy. If there hadn't been a coaching change, I would have expected Ty Thompson to, uh, just be, you know, the, the heavy, heavy favorite to be the starting quarterback moving forward. But when you have a change in coaching staff, you know, maybe maybe you decide uh, or you don't have a history with a player like Ty Thompson and there is a history with Dillingham and, and Bo Nix. Maybe you feel a little more comfortable. I don't know. A lot of stuff to think about, a lot of, a lot of angles to it. Uh, but it, it certainly was a sort of an eyebrow-raising move because Oregon was not you know, and I expected to to be in the mix for Bonix. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think um, it's the second most surprising move behind Rattler going to South Carolina. I think those are both, uh, you know, as far as QB moves go, you just go, wow. there's a, there's okay. a coach history there too. Cause Shane Beamer was at, at Oklahoma. So, I mean, right. it's, it, it is surprising. It doesn't seem like a big fit. I mean, Jack Miller to Florida doesn't seem, you know, the, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Couple of Arizona guys moving to the SEC. Bo Nix was uh, from Alabama, going to Oregon. I mean, it, it, you know, everybody geography. thought Rattler was going to the Pac-12, dude. Everybody thought it. They, yeah, they thought ASU, yeah. UCLA to re- replace DTR, something like that. Uh, so, and then he ends up at South Carolina. You know what I mean? And Oregon for Bo Nix mm-hmm. being a uh, you know Alabama State guy uh, was surprising. So. Uh, yeah, a lot of surprising moves, but I mean, look, you know, if you want a career after college, uh, after college, sometimes you got to make these moves. And I think Rattler mm-hmm. can greatly improve his stock at South Carolina. I think Bonix can do the same thing for himself, uh, at Oregon. So, uh, interesting sure. moves to, to say the least, but, um, you know, we like him, but we got a lot of bowls to cover here, guys. So, uh, 15 bowls between what we do is we're going to run. From Thursday to Wednesday, we'll be doing that uh, next week as well. So uh, are we ready to kick it off? You ready to go, Nick? Yep, let's do it. Let's roll. All right. So we start out with the uh, the Frisco Bowl, Frisco Classic, excuse me, because the Frisco Bowl has already been played. So this is the Frisco Classic. Uh, so uh, it's North Texas versus Miami of Ohio. Miami of Ohio is a two and a half point spread, 54 and a half is the over under Nick. So who do you have in the Frisco classic? 
So this is uh, the game that they created basically to give all uh, six win teams an opportunity at a, at a bowl game. So uh, last minute change, but I am uh, always of the opinion that more football is, is better than uh, less football. So, hey, happy to, to see it. Um, this game, our projections are pretty much in line with uh, the odds makers with the market. Um, we also have Miami of Ohio favored, but by uh, less than uh, the two and a half points. Our, our final score prediction is 31 to 29. Um, you know, uh, the Mac has struggled a lot in, in bowl play so far. So I guess with that in mind, I, I feel okay that we're on North Texas to cover. Although I do like, you know, a few players on uh, the Miami roster specifically. Brett Gabbert's had a really big second half of the year, had some, uh, you know, a couple of huge games in Mac play. Jack Sorensen is one of the more, uh, really one of the better receivers at the group of five level. Incredibly, incredibly productive career. Uh, he's wrapping up his career uh, with, with this game. I, I, you know, hope he gets an opportunity at the professional level because he's just, you know, all he has done is produced at wide receiver there. Mac Hippenhammer, uh, former Penn State wide receiver, uh, kind of the number two guy there uh, at Miami. He has an additional year of eligibility according to uh, our records, but, you know, unclear as to whether or not he'll come back and, and be Gabbert's go-to guy next season, but a pretty solid one-two combo there at wide receiver. Not a whole lot of things jump out uh, statistically on the Miami side. They do have some uh, decent offensive numbers, yards per play, yards per pass attempt, both rank in the top 40 against FBS opponents only. Of course, their strength of schedule, not particularly high. They played the 119th uh, schedule according to our calculations. North Texas, uh, you know, similar boat, not a whole lot of things jump out. But one thing that I think it's important to note earlier in the year, the, the defense at North Texas and the team as a whole really, really struggled. I mean, they lost six games in a row, right? They, they uh, won their opener against Northwestern State, lost six in a row, and then they haven't lost since. Uh, part of that turnaround was their defense, which last year was horrendous. Uh, and early, you know, in the early season, um, they – continued and, and they struggled, but uh, they've, they've really turned a corner defensively. They actually finished the regular season in the top 50 in defensive team performance. They are 32nd against the run. They uh, are, you know, susceptible to the passing game, which Miami's best chance probably is, is uh, through the air, but they rank uh, North Texas ranked 88 in defensive team performance uh, against the pass pass um and north texas's offense is is kind of similar we're used to them being a pretty prolific passing attack but this year they've really leaned heavily on on deandre tory and and uh you know the rest of that running back group i cake ragsdale's had a few uh decent games um but yeah north texas it it is kind of changed its whole philosophy a little bit throughout the course of the season to where now they they run the football and they stop the run, and that has set them up pretty well for success. The offensive line 
ranks in the top 25 in our O-line performance ratings. The defensive line actually ranks in the top 20 in uh, our, our D-line performance rating, 16th. Uh, the pass rush has been really, really good, even though, like I said, the, the pass defense has been a, a bit of an issue. Uh, Grayson Murphy and Gabriel Murphy, the uh, pair of edge rushers and twins, I believe, um, were incredibly, incredibly productive during the regular season. Katie Davis at linebacker had an, an incredibly productive year. One of the things I've done the last couple of weeks is go through and all the defensive production points are fully up to date through the end of the regular season now. And those guys jumped out to me. All three uh, were well in the, the double digits in production points this year, just based on some counting stats, but then also, uh, you know, number of pressures and, and things like that. Uh, they've been a big part of the turnaround. And, and so, uh, you know, Miami is, is probably going to try to attack a relatively thin and, and has been banged up at times secondary for North Texas, but will they have, will Gabbert have uh, enough time to operate because that pass rush, you know, the, the, Two Murphys uh, have been really, really good this year, and, and North Texas should have an advantage in the front seven. So I I think I like the projection. Um, I, I think I would rather be on North Texas to cover. It's close enough. Wouldn't be a, a surprise at all for them to win outright. And part of that is, you know, North Texas has uh, been, been the hotter team, been, you know, has a, a really uh, long winning streak coming in, hasn't lost in a while. The strength of schedule, you know, it's not like they played a tougher strength of schedule, um, but I, I, I do think this is a game that they're fairly evenly matched. North Texas, I like what I've seen recently. Uh, defensively, I like that uh, they have been able to run the football with DeAndre Torrey, who other than uh, Jack Sorensen might be the best offensive player in this game so uh not a huge edge 31 29 the projected final score with miami winning but i i do like that we're on north texas to cover xavier i'm on north texas too just that win streak to get to a bowl game uh this rushing offense has been great uh yeah. miami ohio's offense is okay like nick yeah. mentioned gabbert good at the end of the year but just i would say average here so uh what do you think about the uh, frisco challenge yeah i'm i'm, I'm a little concerned or the frisco classic classic yeah. excuse me <laughs> you're fine no i'm just messing with you uh but i'm gonna stay away from mac teams right now uh they've just been bludgeoned in these bowl games so far uh and i think it's a real test that when you look at the Mac and I said this in the first episode we did last week about the bowl games I was really excited to see all of these Mac teams competing with one another and when you look at Miami of Ohio's schedule this year they have a lot of one score losses you know lost by two to Ohio one to Eastern Michigan seven to Ball State overtime against Kent State and as much as that for me in the first episode was a positive after watching the first couple of bowl games of MAC teams, I, I'm not so sure about that, especially from a defensive side. Uh, you know, the, the defense has not been something that has been played in a lot of these bowl games, really any of them. I think over half of them have hit the over already, if I'm not mistaken, uh, uh, in their bowl game. So I'm going with North Texas because I feel like not only are they coming in with such confidence, they're going to come in with 
ridiculous confidence. They got they beat a UTSA team. They beat a right team at the end of the year, which surprised everybody. And they didn't just beat them by like a, a last second field goal. They 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 dominated that ball game. Um, and, and UTSA really added some garbage points at the end of the game to even make it look close. They scored ten points in the fourth quarter. It was 45-13 going into that quarter. Uh, I think North Texas is playing with a level of confidence and a level of you know, security about themselves that I don't think that Miami of Ohio is going to be able to compete with. Uh, it's going to be really telling, though, to see what happens if North Texas just fa- does excuse me, face any kind of uh, – I want to say controversy, but that's not, that's not the word. Oh, adversity in the game. Uh, you know, I, I, I want to see if they're able to play through it because when you're on a six-game rec- uh, you know, win streak like they are – Let's say, you know, Miami of Ohio comes out really early and punches them in the mouth. Is North Texas going to turn into the team that we saw in the first six weeks? Or are they going to play more indicative of the, you know, of the team we saw the last six weeks? And it's really hard to gauge a team like that when you're talking about a team that's had such a stark difference in, you know, first half of the season versus second half is when does it wear off? That's what you're almost asking yourself is when does this defense that you've been watching over the last six weeks revert back to their old ways, revert back to some of the old things that they were doing that led them to being, you know, uh, one in six to begin with, right? So I, I think North Texas, though, I don't think Miami Ohio has enough in the tank to really, you know, challenge them in that regard. I think, when you, like you guys said about the quarterback position, I think we're looking at a situation in Brett Gabbard where he's good, but I don't think he, he he's elite enough, in my opinion, to, to really take advantage of this North Texas back end that has struggled at points in this year. Um, Brett Gabbard's also going to give you one. He's going to give you a, a turnover here or there. I think North Texas will capitalize on that on Saturday. Well, not Saturday. I, I want to say Saturday because that's just kind of where I go immediately. Because <laughs> we're just we always talking about college football, so I'll immediately go there. Uh, but I, I think that that's where you look at it. On, on, on the other end about that, I think North Texas is going to make Miami of Ohio really take advantage of their possessions. North Texas Texas runs the football better than a lot, better, way far better than them. And also that's what they lean on. Uh, when they beat UTSA, they ran for 300 yards. I mean, this is a team, like I said, that at least on the ground is starting to find their stride. And I think will force uh, Miami of Ohio to really take advantage of the possessions that they get. Because if not, this run game can absolutely kill the clock uh, and, and, you know, and punish them for not doing so. So I'm going to go with North Texas here to win and to cover. Uh, I just think Miami of Ohio doesn't have enough in the tank offensively for me to be worried about them. Um, and like I said, I think Brett Gabbard is going to give you one or two opportunities, maybe even three opportunities in the game to make a play, to get an interception. He's going to hold the ball too long in the pocket. He's going to do something where it's going to put his team in jeopardy. And that's just what he's been doing all season, even in wins that they've had. So I think I'm going to go with North Texas on this one. Uh, all right, let's move over to the Gasparilla Bowl, a UCF versus Florida in this game. Florida is a seven-point favorite, 55-and-a-half is the over here, Nick. And uh, this one is interesting uh, because I feel like this is a uh, motivation versus effort game. UCF has been wanting to play Florida for a while. They get their chance here, but Florida will be without uh, their head coach, without – uh, they're good quarterback in Richardson, who's always hurt. Uh, looks like uh, uh, Emory Jones, who will go into the transfer portal immediately following this game, is going to play. But they're missing uh, Carter. They're missing uh, Diabody. They're, they're missing a bunch of players here. I don't I think that's how you say his name, but I don't know. But they're, they're missing a lot of players here. UCF is obviously down their starting quarterback. Mikey Keene's been okay. So uh, how do you see this game playing out? So this is one of a few matchups similar to uh, what we've talked about, you know, talked about in my previous batch where the projections are all over the place. Uh, 
the talent edge model that we use that that only looks at things like recruiting ratings and our roster strength numbers uh, shows a huge, huge edge for Florida. I mean, 25 points, Florida would be favored if uh, the the rosters were the only things involved. But you mentioned a pretty long list of things that Florida is, is you know, having to deal with that has little to do with just the numbers as far as uh, their talent goes. And on the other hand, we have a stats-only model, which is designed to be very, very different, have a completely different view of the game than the talent edge model. That one would show UCF as an outright favorite of almost a touchdown, just based on the way that they've played in uh, you know this most recent regular season, uh, first and foremost, but it also does take into account recent history the last few years as well, would have UCF favored. So that's, you know, a, a, what is that? 25 plus seven, 32 point uh, range of outcomes uh, is difficult to find a, a middle point and, and just sort of the way that we calculate things. It's, it's tricky. Sometimes uh, our official model does take into uh, account both of those aspects. It also uh, takes into account things like coaching ratings and, and all of that. Longtime listeners have heard this probably every every week forever, but if this is your first time, uh, just a, a, a kind of a, a little bit of an explanation of, of how we do things. But yeah, I mean, you know, we do have Florida favored and the talent is a big reason why. Um, UCF has had some injury issues. It does sound like Isaiah Bowser, the uh, pretty impressive running back. I mean, when he was healthy early in the year, was was really, really impressive uh, watching him run. It sounds like he's good to go, but we haven't seen him 100% in quite a while. Um, but, you know, with him and, and if UCF is able to uh, run the football, yeah, I, I, I think they'll be able to – hang in this game for sure. I mean, UCF is is plenty talented. They've got a handful of uh, former, you know, Power 5 signees, guys like Bowser who transferred from Northwestern, uh, guys like Jalen Robinson at, at wide receiver. Um, you know, they're, they have some, some talented players. Big Cat Bryant, big-time uh, performer, very, very productive edge rusher. For the Knights, former Auburn, uh, former All SEC, you know, second team All SEC player, I believe, uh, in his past. So, yeah, the the talent numbers, twenty five points, probably sounds like a lot, and that that's certainly understandable. It it, it would seem that UCF is a, in a little bit uh, closer to that, but you know, the fact that remains that just position by position. Florida's got a little bit more just raw talent on hand, but what are we going to see from Emory Jones? Are we going to see the guy who uh, lost a, a firm grip on his job at different points through the season? Or are we going to see the guy that against a, a really weak opponent, uh, you know, but against Samford put up just huge, huge numbers, uh, a guy who's shown flashes in the past. Are we going to see, you know, is, is he going to be able to, put on a showcase for uh, potential future head coaches, offensive coordinators, guys who are, are going to, uh, you know, maybe pursue him in the transfer portal, or is he going to give us a glimpse of, Hey, maybe this is why the guy's looking to move on. Couldn't really 
Hackett at, at Florida. Uh, there are there are a lot of unknowns. How is Florida going to respond under an interim coach? How are they going to respond uh, with a, a you know new head coach coming in in Billy Napier there? Uh, this this game more than most it seems things outside of the actual rosters outside of the actual game on the field I think are going to take on a little bit more of, of an impact uh, but looking at the teams how they played this year Florida's a little bit better than its six and six record it's two and six record uh, in the SEC according to our uh, team performance numbers they rank 20th overall in team performance a top 25 offense uh they were able to run the ball pretty well have a good group of running backs including damian pierce malik davis they ranked in the top 25 in uh offensive rushing team performance the defense major uh major issue and and of course todd grantham was fired mid-season before dan mullen uh was fired they do have a, a pretty decent passing defense top 30 nationally but teams can run the uh, run the football on them they ranked 65th in uh, defensive rushing team performance that's uh, 53rd overall defensively so i think ucf will have opportunities to move the football especially if bowser is able to play uh but this ucf offense has not been you know the the really high scoring prolific offense that we were used to it has been a little bit of a transition under gus malzahn Injuries have played a big part of that. Mentioned Bowser a few times, but you, you know, briefly mentioned uh, they'll be playing with a backup quarterback. Dylan Gabriel's missed most of the season now, has since transferred to UCLA. Uh, but part of that, injuries and and uh, you know things of that nature, are a big reason why UCF ranks 51st overall in offensive team performance and a really really surprising uh, 96th in passing offensive team performance. On the flip side, UCF has been really, really good defending the pass. And guys like Bryant, um, you know, that that defensive line is pretty deep. Uh, they only rank 50th in D-line performance rating, but can get after the quarterback. And, and you know, I think we'll have uh, – we'll be able to impact Emory Jones and, and maybe throw him off rhythm. Um, but kind of the, the UCF defense's – biggest weakness at least as it stands right now is florida's biggest strength ucf ranked 80th in rushing defensive team performance so uh our projection officially is not one with a very huge edge even though the range in in uh, the other two models is quite big uh, our projection is uh, florida favored by eight so we are on florida to cover i don't love of that I've mentioned uh, a little bit before that in bowl games I really would rather be on uh, if all things you know were equal I'd, I'd rather be on the underdog I do think the non uh, you know football roster piece of this uh, a lot of those factors tend to point a little bit more toward UCF than Florida so I think I'd rather be on UCF but uh, as our, you know, as our numbers shake out, uh, we are on Florida to cover final score 35, 26. Uh, so we're on the over as well. A lot of overs in this batch, but Florida to cover, uh, and, and, uh, for the game to go over the 55 and a half. Xavier, so, how do you see the Gasparilla bowl playing out? Like, uh, we mentioned it's an interesting one. Yeah. Florida definitely would be the heavy favorite if, uh, we're just talking about skill, but there's a mm -hmm. lot going into this game. So who do you think comes out with it? 
Well, I, I still think you've got to look at Florida as the favorite here just because of the fact that they've had a coaching turnover doesn't necessarily mean that I, I think that, you know, this team's all of a sudden going to give up. If anything, having Napier in there, I think is going to make a lot of kids play for their jobs. Uh, you know, this, you know, I always say this when a coaching change happens that, you know, these kids are no longer playing with an with, with the staff that, you know, understands them or favors them or things of that nature. And Napier's made it pretty clear upon his arrival that nobody's job is safe. I mean, yesterday when uh, the, the transfer quarterback that you guys were talking about earlier decided to transfer, or Jack Miller transferred into Florida last uh, this year, they, they he said right away, Jack Miller and Anthony Richardson will compete for that job. There is nothing set in stone right now at Florida whatsoever, and I think that he's made that very, very clear. Uh, and, and I think that if that's the case, a lot of these kids are using this as an audition for their jobs next season, right? You know, uh, you know they, they've got to go out there and play a team that, from all intents and purposes, they should go out there and beat by, I think, 10-plus personally. And it's exactly for what Nick said. You know, Florida's running game, for all of their woes, Florida's running game has been excellent this year. You know, this is, you know, this is a product of Dan Mullen, uh, you know, him having the ability to change the styles in which his teams need to uh, to, to match the personnel. And this year, they've been a more of a run-heavy team. I don't think Emory Jones being at quarterback uh, in this game will be that much of a downturn uh, for them. Uh, once again, I believe, believe that to be the case because of the fact that Billy Napier is in. And there's going to be less of an idea that if we play bad, because there was there were, there were some rumblings that, you know, the players liked Richardson more. Well, that's got to be thrown out the window to an extent, because if you don't play well, then you're now ruining your job. You're not just messing it up for Emory at this point. Right. So you've right. got to come in there and, and make and make a statement going into the spring, because this is the only game that Napier has an opportunity to look back at the film of his coached ball club, uh, which I really love in this game from that perspective and why I have Florida winning and covering uh, in this situation um, on the the other end, I think that when you look at UCF, I just I, the Gus Malzahn uh, turnover has not gone as planned, and I think that it's going to take a little bit longer for that to finally hit fruition. Uh, I just think that his scheme has not maybe he maybe hasn't hit the ground running. You know, Nick said something when Gus first went to UCF. He was like, maybe this change of scenery will get him back to the old days where he was more of an offensive savant, where he was trying different things. And I'm not sure that the first year has allowed him to do that, due in large part to Dylan Gabriel being hurt. But I just don't think that the him he's had the talent and had the maybe you know the buy-in in first year to to have that you know reset button hit for him. I think it may take another season, but I don't think you see it in this game. Maybe he does get a little creative. Heck, you know, this will be the first SEC team he's played it uh, played against in a while. Maybe he gets a little creative, right? But I, I genuinely think that coming into this game. You know, you, you're going to see more of the growing pains that we've seen all season with them rather than all of a sudden everything just clicking. But I think, like I said, I think Malzahn's system is going to take, you know, maybe two years because it, it, to an extent, I feel like Malzahn is rebuilding his own system. You know, I think he's trying different things now that he's at UCF. He's building new things out. He's, you know, fleshing some things out that at Auburn wouldn't work because he was in the SEC and he had to just win games. He was just trying to get to nine and three every year because that was like his quota where I feel like now to an extent, he can have a little bit more, you know, earnest to try out different things. So he's probably rebuilding it in that way and uh, in, in, in shape and form. And so I think that when you look at this game, you're going to see more of that than anything from Gus Malzahn and UCF, which is once again why I think, you know, Florida wins this game. And, and yeah, they're missing a lot of players who have decided to sit out for the draft. Uh, you mentioned Diabate uh, earlier, who's in the transfer portal. I, I, I just think that when you look at Florida, they're so much more talented. It's got to shine through at some point, right? It, it, you know, like they, they played a very poorest 
FSU team and they let them hang around. You've got to think with a new regime. And if you haven't seen what Napier has done at Florida, not only has he come in, but he has like now the second biggest coaching staff in college football. He's bringing in everybody. Like every, like there's like 10 guys on that roster who are like quality control analyst of passing game X, Y, and Z. Like he's <laughs> building like such a big coaching staff. And it's just because he wants to, you know, bring in his guys and he's bringing in so many, uh, so many, you know, people that I think that's also due to accountability. I, I think that he wants more. It also guys sounds more like a water boy would be a water intake specialist. You know? Right. Like, he, like, I mean, but he's just doing like, so like I, I, Florida has posted more coaches hired in the last like week than I think that, you know, maybe ever like they, he's just brought in whomever he could that has had any kind of connection to anybody. And it's really telling that I think he wants more accountability when you have all of those coaches. Now the players don't have just like one defensive coordinator in their position group. Now they've got maybe a guy that specializes in what exactly he does in pocket passing and duo threat. And I think that that is an accountability decision from Billy Napier to make sure that his players are Philly are being held accountable by not just the coaches at the top, but by the coaches in the middle and at the bottom. Uh, I, I mean, it's going to be an interesting game. It, it's it's one that I think you're either going to be on the edge of your seat watching at the end, like, oh, can UCF pull this off? Or you're going to be like, uh, well, what's on NFL Network? Because this is 56 to three and it's, uh, you know, uh, the third quarter. So it's, it's going to be. be- I think it's going to go either extreme. I don't think it's going to be tight. That's, that's fair. Also, my favorite, probably my favorite bowl game name, Gasparilla, I just think is the best. It's a solid all. name. Yeah. It's a solid name. Yeah. Uh, I would say so. Uh, let's go to the Hawaii Bowl. Uh, not very original, but, you know, uh, guess where this game is. Uh, and guess who's hosting it, by the way. Memphis at Hawaii, because it really is a home game for Hawaii, even though they would call it a neutral site. It's a home game for them. Uh, even with that, though, Memphis is an eight-and-a-half-point favorite. Fifty-five-and-a-half is the over. Uh, you know, we're going to see no Calvin Austin in this game. We're going to see no uh, Cordero, no Dede Hunter. So a lot of big pieces out for this game, which does slant it uh, a lot in Memphis's favor here, Nick. So uh, a lot home field advantage for Hawaii, though. So that is big. So how do you see the Hawaii Bowl going? Home field advantage is, is a potential factor. I mean, in the last group, we were kind of talking uh, last week. Who Who's closer to their bowl site? Is there maybe something that's going to be worth uh, a point or, or something like that? Uh, but Hawaii, actually, you mentioned it, is playing at their home uh, venue. And so they get the full two and a half points for our uh, projection purposes for home field advantage. But you mentioned, you know, that Hawaii will be without their starting quarterback, Shevin Cordero. They will also be without uh, their starting running back, Day Day Hunter. There's also more off the field stuff. A couple of weeks ago, we heard and, and there was a Twitter spaces with a lot of uh, current and former Hawaii football players, um, you know, alleging things about the staff there that, that uh, uh, Todd Graham and, and his staff just weren't um you know we're we're not uh we're, we're kind of upsetting a lot of people there uh at Hawaii a lot of the players uh we've seen not only Cordero and and Hunter but a few other players uh leave as, as well start former starting corner Cameron Lockridge has since transferred to South Alabama just as an example but there's been a lot of turnover at Hawaii and you kind of wonder you know it, are they going to uh 
how are they going to play? How are they going to, to, to react to those sort of things? Um, what is the, the relationship right now between the staff and the roster? It's, it's a, a tricky situation and we can't really account for a whole lot of it. The one thing that we can do is, is look at things like, like our roster strength numbers and team performance and, and what have you. And there in a lot of ways, yeah, Memphis is, is rightly favored on the road in this game, even without, Calvin Austin. Um, Memphis has been, you know, a little bit of a disappointment by most uh, folks' standards this year. We were lower on Memphis than most, and it's kind of worked out. They did only finish six and six, uh, ranked 83rd in overall team performance. The offense has not quite been as explosive as we're used to in the past. They ranked 63rd overall on offense, 33rd passing, and 83rd rushing a little bit of a surprise because they've relied heavily on a true freshman quarterback, Seth Hannigan, who's uh, been a, a pleasant surprise. You know, Grant Gunnell transferred from Arizona, looked like he was going to be uh, the, the full-time starter there and, and an injury has sidelined him all year. And Seth Hannigan has come in and, and played really, really well and has gotten me a little bit excited about uh, Memphis in, in 2022. It's going to be fun to see how they fill out that offense around him because they've got a deep and talented running back group. Brendan Thomas has been the the starter most of the year. Rodriguez Clark was a starter last year. Asa Martin, former Auburn running back. I mean, they're, they're deep there as usual, but who's going to step up and be that go-to receiver now that Calvin Austin is gone. Sean Dykes, the tight end, really versatile tight end, athletic, not a traditional inline tight end. Probably your best bet to be the go-to target for Hennigan in the bowl game, but uh, Javon Ivory as a, a pure wideout most likely, you know, steps into that number one role. Uh, but Gabriel Rogers, former uh, defensive back, is is uh, somebody who's who's an option. And then Eddie Lewis, a transfer from Rutgers, has had a couple of nice games as well, and and could be auditioning for that uh, number one, you know, spot in in twenty twenty. So uh, even without Austin, Memphis does have options. Defensively, it has been uh, a little bit of a struggle for Memphis. They have done relatively well defending the pass. They actually ranked uh, 39th in yards per pass attempt against FBS opponents, 66th in passing defensive team performance, uh, but they've struggled against the run. They ranked 83rd uh, in our defensive team performance there. So will Hawaii be able to, uh, you know, take advantage of that? Dedrick Parson transfer from uh, Howard at the FCS level has, has stepped up and, and had a solid season. Uh, you know, Hunter missed some time with injury. Calvin Turner, who's played mostly wide receiver, but has played some running back in the past, might be the best overall player in this game. Be interesting to see will they get him more involved in the running game they have uh, for most of this season. What will true freshman? We've got you know battling true freshman starters at quarterback here. Braden Schrager who did uh, start a, a few games with Cordero sidelined this year. Will he able, be able to take a, a bit of a step forward? Hennigan, you know, stepped up and, and played incredibly well uh, most of the entire season. Shager has been, you know, been a bit spotty, not, not quite uh, looked completely, uh, you know, in control 
I think he does have a, a you know bright future, and as of right now, you would expect is is the favorite to be the starter in 2022. But you know, just based on regular season, what we've seen from these two, uh, seems like Memphis has a, a pretty big advantage at the quarterback position but hawaii ranks pretty pretty uh similarly in offensive team performance 83rd overall 60th rushing and 77th uh passing no major advantage on the defensive side of the ball either they rank 77th in defensive team performance overall 87th against pass which is a good sign for memphis uh and 62nd against the run but there are some you know really really productive uh, players on, on defense for Hawaii. Uh, a couple of names to uh, note Darius Musau at linebacker. Uh, I mentioned production points. So we, you know, calculate all sorts of things, do count up things like, uh, you know, tackles for loss, sacks, interceptions, things like that. But this, this guy's a, a, a playmaker, you know, will rush the passer, uh, has multiple defensive touchdowns, has really, really gotten after it. Uh, Corey Bethley, who's listed as a safety in our, our team uh, profiles, but does play kind of a hybrid position linebacker uh, at times. Similar production numbers uh, has, has really, really been solid. Cortez Davis at corner has been a former uh, All-Mountain West player. So Hawaii has some, some you know, some talented players and really productive players on the defensive side, uh, but hasn't quite been able to put it together quite as a unit. So I think Memphis is rightly favored, even on the road. I do think they have an edge at the quarterback position, despite both starters being uh, true freshmen. It's just, you know, how are they going to implement Calvin Turner? Is he going to get some snaps at quarterback? Uh, he's you know done Wildcat quarterback in the past, has played quarterback uh, at a, a previous school. So you know it would be interesting to see will they try some creative things with him. But uh, even with the home field advantage and even with our overall projection leaning toward Hawaii covering, I kind of wish we were on Memphis here. Even though it's bigger than a touchdown on the road, that does seem like a lot so you know maybe I, I shouldn't be complaining that we're on hawaii to cover our projection is is a good bit closer uh than what the odds makers have right now we have it 31 28 is the final score so another over and hawaii to cover um but i just i just don't love it i, I feel like there are a lot of signs on the memphis side that that make me think that uh that pretty big uh point spread even on the road is is warranted i kind of i kind of wish our projection were were flipped here uh but we do think hawaii will be able to at least keep it close and and i guess you know to make me feel a little bit better being a home underdog in most cases I, i'd probably uh rather that but i think there are just a lot of signs pointing at memphis in this one yeah i mean uh i i'm rolling with memphis here xavier do you have uh any faith in Hawaii? I mean, you know, there are some positives here. Being at home, uh, best player for Memphis and Calvin Austin is out. Right. So, uh, what are your thoughts on the Hawaii Bowl? I mean, outside. I mean, the real home field advantage for Hawaii is probably the time difference. I mean, let's just be honest with right. ourselves. You know, I, I you know, I, I don't it's think not going to be a lot it, of people there. Yeah, That's I was like, Nick can, Nick can, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm not sure if they're going to pack out this bowl game. I'm, yeah, I'm not 100 sure about that. Uh, well, so they play at a pretty small. They, they've they this year they don't play at mm -hmm. Aloha Stadium anymore. They play at a, okay. a venue on campus that is 
8,000 or something like that. And I think they've only had full capacity of one game that the COVID restrictions in Hawaii have been a lot stricter Pretty tight. Uh, than most, yeah. most places. And I, I would assume uh, I haven't heard specifically, but, but would think because of the goings on the last week or two, that there's a chance that they could be uh, tightening things back up a little bit more after they were uh, allowing full capacity there for a while. But, but yeah, it, it even if they packed it out, it would be a pretty small crowd. So yeah, the home field advantage here is the long flight, the time difference, all of that for sure. Okay, cool. Cause I, and, and I might even have to take jet, you know, the, the jet lag away and the time difference because uh, Memphis has been there for quite a while now. They, they've been there for uh, at least four, three, four days counting today. They left on December 19th. So they've been there for a while now. So they, they probably allowed themselves to get acclimated uh, when it comes to the time difference. So that might not even be that big of a, big of a, a plus for Hawaii in this game. And I just think Memphis is a more talented ball club. You know, I, yes, it's a bowl game. So anything could happen. Obviously we've seen some upsets so far. San Diego state got to win. I don't think that most of us were expecting. I definitely didn't think that they were going to win that ball game. Uh, but I, you know, I, in Hawaii, impressively enough, was able to beat a Wyoming team that would look really good the other day in their respective bowl game as well. So Hawaii is coming in with some confidence uh, after that, beating them 38-14 to 14 on the road, which has to be something that they that they gravitate to when they're talking about this game. And on top of that, they've had a month away from football, you know, allowed themselves to take more than enough time to get healthy, to get, you know, mentally prepared for this ball game. Uh, where, you know, you know, and so I think when you look at all those things combined, yes, could Hawaii absolutely come out you know, at least in the first couple of drives, blazing on all cylinders and, and possibly put themselves in a position to win the ball game. I, I wouldn't put it past them, but I think ultimately Memphis's talent will kick in at some point and they'll be able to win this ball game. I think when you look at this Memphis team, they're going to be, they're, they're definitely going to feel like this year could have been completely different for them had the ball bounced a couple of different ways. You know, they lose to buy three to uh, UTSA, three to Temple. Uh, one to East Carolina in overtime. It's a team that probably feels that they could have easily have finished the year off nine and three, uh, eight and four, and not six and six. And I think they'll play like that um, when they do on Friday when they play Hawaii. I think they'll play with a little bit more swagger about themselves, understanding that they are the better team coming into this game. And yes, without even their best player, I think when you lose your best player in some respects, it's obviously bad. But it also allows for other people to step up. And in a game like this, in a bowl game in particular, having that ability for other people to step up uh, and fill those shoes is imperative, especially against a team in Hawaii who hasn't, who was, when they watch the film, they're going to see Austin all over the, all over the tape. They're just going to, and now they're going to have to prepare for some other guys that maybe not have as much tape as, you know, than what they've seen. The offense may look a little bit different because of the fact that he's going to miss this ball game. And so even with those, those little tweaks coming in the bowl season, it makes the game a little bit more different for Hawaii as far as scheming defensively is concerned because scheming for one guy versus having the scheme for three more because you don't know who the ball is necessarily going to go to on third down, who the ball is necessarily going to go to when they need a big play. That makes it a little bit more difficult uh, in, in a scheming situation. So I like Memphis in this game for all of those reasons. And, and yeah, and I, and I think kudos to Memphis coaching staff for getting them to Hawaii early because that is a very, very big thing when you do play these long games, making sure you don't you, you give yourself more than enough time to acclimate yourself so that the jet lag doesn't kill you. 
Yeah, I mean, so uh, I, I like I, I didn't realize that they were already there and uh, going to be there for about a week before uh, the game starts. So even more of a reason to like Memphis in this game. Hawaii, I, Memphis, I think, would be favored even if Hawaii was at full strength, but Hawaii not at full strength uh, lends towards them uh, very, very well. The Camilla Bowl on Christmas Day, we know our boys Javier is going to be there. Georgia State versus Ball State. Yay. Georgia State is a six-point favorite. 51 is the over under here, Nick. And to me, this just does not look like a good match for Ball State. I think Georgia State uh, wins this game. How do you see it playing out? So I've, I've taken to calling it the best bet in college football this season, fading our all three agree uh, <laughs> projections. And if you had done that so far in bowl season, you'd be three and zero because we are zero and three and our all three <laughs> agree. And Hey, this is a, this is another one. All state to cover is an all three agree. So maybe you're right that, that Georgia state is the obvious, uh, you know, team, a, a much better matchup. Uh, but ball state's been a bit of a disappointment this year. Mac champs last season played really well, brought a lot of guys back um, on both sides of the football. And, you know, right. Drew Plitt has been uh, far more inconsistent than you would expect from a, a player who's uh, as experienced as he is the wide receiver duo of Justin Hall and Johannes Tyler, not quite as, uh, you know, impactful maybe as, as we expected. Hall has specifically been banged up recently, only played a, a handful of snaps uh, in their most recent game. Jayshon Jackson, the transfer in, in his first year, uh, you know, has, has kind of uh, taken on a, a heavier role than maybe you might have expected with those two uh, you know, that, that top one, two target uh, combo in Hall and Tyler. So he's, he's stepped up and, and uh, gives Ball State another option there. But, you know, six and six, 500 record in Mac play, certainly not you, what, what you would have expected for the defending champion with, I believe, what, 20 starters uh, coming back. I know they were top 25 in returning production on both offense, defense, and, you know, top 15 overall. So really, really disappointing to see them finish the regular season. 101st in offensive team performance, 110th in offensive passing team performance. The defense, which was similarly experienced, uh, really, you know, excellent group of linebackers. You know, they rank in the top 25 nationally in our linebacker uh, position strength ratings. But, you know, that unit has been fine, but, but not a major impact. The defensive line has been disappointing they ranked 116th in d-line team performance uh during the regular season and and just a team that has underachieved georgia state in in a lot of ways not the team we expected uh georgia state to be this year the results have been i think in line a winning season we talked uh, in the the early preseason that i thought georgia state uh talk about, about returning production i mean offensive returning production they rank number one the way we calculate it in the preseason but two of the biggest pieces of that number quarterback uh quad brown and, and running back uh dustin coates aren't there anymore <laughs> both guys transferred uh brown was a, a disappointment 
appointment, lost his job to Darren Granger. Uh, Coates ended up uh, getting, you know, Tucker Gregg and, and uh, Jameis Williams have taken over as a, a pretty good running back duo there for Georgia State. And they've been able to, to keep it going despite some turnover at those two positions. They've had injuries at the receiver position as well. So uh, another really solid duo with high expectations coming into the year, Sam Pinkney and Cornelius McCoy, neither of those guys is really, you know, produced at a high level because uh, they've had a lot of changeover on the offensive side of the ball. And plus there's been injuries at that position. The offensive line is solid. So you'd think that a offensive line that ranks really highly in a lot of our talent numbers, uh, but ranks 50th, you know, solid, not spectacular, but 50th in O-line performance rating this year going up against a different uh, Ball State defensive line that has really struggled uh, should be a, a pretty good advantage. And then on the other side, uh, Georgia State has a, a, a similarly solid uh, defensive line, highly productive interior defensive linemen, uh, Dante William and, and Thomas Gore. Both of those guys put up double digit uh, performance or, or excuse me, uh, production points during the regular season. So really, really solid uh, year for those two. And, and again, probably gives Georgia State an advantage on both offensive lines, at least is, is how well they've played this year. Not a whole lot of things jump out statistically. Uh, Georgia State is a little bit better in team performance overall. They rank 69th on offense. Uh, they rank 102nd passing. They've, they've really, really leaned heavily on that running game, which ranks in the top 40, 38th in rushing offensive team performance. Defensively, you know, similar, just, just sort of mediocre uh, numbers add up to a defense that ranks 60th in overall defensive team performance, 94th against the pass. So if that Ball State passing attack, if Drew Plitt, if Johannes Tyler, if Justin Hall can kind of recapture a little of the magic they had in 2020 or kind of live up to the expectations they had coming in, that actually might be their best chance at scoring this upset because the Georgia State run defense has been good. I mean, 46th in rushing defensive team performance, again, not an elite unit by any stretch, but uh, should be able to, to, for the most part, Keep Carson Steele, who had a, a really solid uh, true freshman season at running back for Ball State, but should be able to keep him in check. That offensive line for Ball State ha is good. I mean, 42nd in offensive line team performance. So there's a there's a chance there that maybe that's uh, more of an even matchup than what we we would expect the the Ball State defensive line versus the Georgia State offensive line. Um, but still, I, I would expect that Ball State's best chance here is to attack that Georgia State secondary. So uh, I don't have a whole lot of optimism because this is an all three agree, which has been so bad for us this year. Uh, we're running out of time to, to turn it around, and bowl season is not off to a good start. So, Scott, as I've said, you're, you're probably right thinking that uh, Georgia State is, is the side <laughs> you want to be on here. But we are on Ball State to cover. Our final score uh, prediction projection is – 31-27, another over, uh, but all three models, the Talent Edge model and the Stats model, all fall on Ball State to cover. So, so far in 2021, that has been a horrible, horrible sign, unless you've been uh, you know, taking advantage of the best bet in college football to fade 
uh, that pick. But you know, like I said, we're on we're on Ball State. Don't feel great about it. But thirty one to uh, twenty seven is that that uh, final score projection. Uh, Xavier, you're going to be covering this game or at least, uh, photographing it here. So, uh, how do you see it playing out for your boys at Georgia state? Yeah, uh, this is very reminiscent for me of Western Kentucky last year. Uh, whereas I feel like last year, you know, the, the, the offense obviously was leaning the other direction. Um, they ran the ball very effectively against Western Kentucky and the defense. Once again, the secondary that was much maligned all year had two interceptions. And, And I think that when you look at this team going into this game as Georgia state, and that's what I'll talk about first. As much as they do not pass the football, it's not for a lack of attempt. You know, that they're going to absolutely, and I will put $100 on it if, you know, 100 fake dollars, that the first two plays that Georgia State runs will be a go route by Cradell and in a go route from Pickney. I guarantee it because that's exactly what everybody thinks they're going to do. They're going to, they think they're going to just run the football like 40 times a game. Tucker's going to have 20. Williams is going to have 20. And, and that's what they want to do. But ultimately, they, they still have all of that talent on the outside. They still have Pinkney, uh, McCoy, Cradell, like I just said, Thrash, Carter, all of these guys. Even Aubrey Payne caught a touchdown pass in the last game that they played. So th- this is a team that wants to throw the football. Like they just, they want to. They go in the bunch sets and will have to run out of them. But this is a team who ultimately wants to put the ball in the air when they have opportunities to. And that run game that you talked about, Nick, has been the large reason as to why they've been able to run the, to, to throw the ball deep when they want to. So it'll be on Ball State to really come in and, and just be prepared for those play calls because of the fact that Georgia State wants everybody to think, hey, we're just gonna we're just gonna run the ball, you know, 60 times. And, and that's kind of the 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 dummy that they'll do to start the game off. Um from a ball state perspective, I, I genuinely think in this game they have to they, they have to keep Georgia State honest in the passing game. I'm not talking about throwing it deep, uh just keeping them honest because the secondary as good as it as good as it has been at times this year, uh I hearken back to Georgia Southern where I believe they had two interceptions. They've been just as bad. You know, you, you think about the Coastal Carolina game and the game that they won. Honestly, if Coastal Carolina had one more possession with ample enough time, they probably would have won that ball game. Like, you know, it was one of those situations where they score and then they don't pick up the two-point conversion. But if it had been like eight minutes after the fourth quarter, I think Coastal wins that ball game because the, the, the secondary, as good as it can be, oftentimes it plays down. And they do not, you know, consistently play four quarters. They'll play maybe one quarter. You saw what happened against Auburn. You know, they played three quarters, and then the secondary gave away the, you know, a 98-yard touchdown drive, a lot of which was through the air. So, like, you you look at it in that way, and if Ball State can just keep that secondary from, you know, uh, you know, keep that secondary honest, then that front four, that front seven that you talk about, led by Willis and also led by guys like Blake Carroll, uh, or excuse me, not Blake Carroll, but uh, Carroll, are going to go – are going to be huge in making sure that Ball State can run the football because Georgia State's going to pack the box. That's what they're going to do. That's what they've been doing all season. They're probably going to run a defense similar to that to what they ran against Louisiana where they essentially said, we're going to pack the box. We're going to make you beat us down the field. And what did Levi do that day? He beat them down the field when he needed to, right? That's what Ball State has to be able to do. It's beating them on third down when they really need to. And if they can do that, then I think that Ball State will have an opportunity to stay in this ball game. My only concern, well, my major concern with Ball State is can they stop the run firstly? Because if they can't, and Georgia State finds that out early enough in the ball game without turning the ball over to, you know, without turning the ball over, which Darren Granger hasn't done too much this year, they're just going to run it for funsies. And it's going to be very difficult for Ball State to stop them because Georgia State will run it on passing downs. They will run it on third and eight. They will run it on third, you know, third and seven because they have so much confidence in the guys in and around that team, especially with the offensive line that I came into the year talking about 
the fact that they returned all five starters and they've been excellent down the stretch. They struggled to start the year off, but they've been really good down the last couple of games. And I think that they, there's more confidence than ever in that running game, not just from the running back position, but also Granger is a threat to run on, on third and shorts uh, by pulling the ball on the read option. So Ball State's got their hands full genuinely because you've got a team that was, you know, to Nick's credit, you've got a team in Georgia state that to start the year off was built to pass. Like, I'm going to be completely honest with you. They expected to come in this year, go four wide, and pass it around the yard with Quad Brown at quarterback. It just didn't end up that way. So you've still got all the talent that's there. You just don't have the exact same play calling. So you still have to plan for both kind of instances happening because at the end of the day, Georgia State will throw the ball deep in this game. I get, Like I said, I guarantee you first play of the game is going to be a pass. That's just what they've done all year. They, they, they think that most defenses are going to pack the box in and they're going to say, you know what? especially if Ball State shows them one-on-one -on, -one on the outside, it's going to be a pass. It's going to be a go route down the right or left sideline, and he's going to tell Granger to rear back and throw it as far as he possibly can. Hell, close his eyes if he, met, if he must to get that ball in the receiver's hands. Uh, I got Georgia State winning this game. I also have Georgia State covering. Uh, I just think that, you know, this is a team that's feeling very confident going into this game and feels very confident in bowl games under Sean Elliott. You know, there's a team that last year went in as an underdog against Western Kentucky and pretty much handled that game. And I think that they're going to feel similarly to that um, and, and, you know, celebrate their Christmas with a win and hopefully because man, that would be a suckful Christmas to be in Montgomery in a loss by myself. That would just be a <laughs> terrible way to spend Christmas. Uh, let's, let's just finish off this season with a win boys. I, I would really appreciate that. Yeah. Well, let's hope that we're not in that situation for you, you know, driving home uh, a loser on Christmas day. So That's a two and a half hour drive of sadness. Oh, wow. Well, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I drove. It was three hours if, home from if Austin. State covered. That would be okay, right? Yeah, that's fine. As long as it's it, a Georgia State wins, win. win. Right, right. 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 We'll, we'll take a win. So we'll take whatever we can get. Yeah, it, it was three hours in the pitch. Don't black I know it? We'll take home, home from get. Austin after losing to Kansas, Xavier. So hopefully you don't have to join me. I mean, it wasn't Christmas Day, so I guess I had that going for me. Uh, the quick lane ball, Nick. It's uh, Western Michigan versus Nevada. Uh, WMU, a seven-point favorite, 50-60 over here. A lot of missing pieces. Well, not a lot, but big missing pieces. And Carson Strong, Colt Turner, Jay Norvell, all out for Nevada. Western Michigan just seems more complete right now, which means we're probably on Nevada, right? <laughs> you know it. Uh, yeah, so uh, you, you had it right the first time that there are a lot of missing pieces for Nevada. Really unique situation where uh, head coach Jay Norvell left Nevada for uh, a division rival uh, for Colorado State. And since he has announced his, his uh, move there, there have been, I believe, more than a dozen Nevada players enter the transfer portal, uh, four of which have landed at Colorado State. Uh, two, no, three, two went to uh, San Jose State, including uh, Torrey Horton, a uh, pretty good wide receiver, who had a big year, and Elijah Cooks, who, uh, you know, very, very talented, uh, has been injured for most of the last couple of seasons, but he's gone to, to uh, both of those have gone to San Jose State. Uh, a couple of other guys in the receiving core, Melquan Stovall and Torrey Horton, to Colorado State, so in addition to Carson Strong being gone and tight end Cole Turner having uh, also opted out of the bowl game, preparing for the NFL draft, I mean, it's it's Romeo Dubs, 
and uh, Harry Ballard and Jamal Bell. And that's about it as far as at least that we know of for, you know, who've seen uh, decent, a decent amount of playing time in the Nevada receiving core. Uh, Toa Tawa, running back, very productive, highly rated in our individual player ratings. He's a 90s player. Um, he's still there. So you would expect, and his brother, I believe, is the interim head coach right now at Nevada. So uh, that might play a role as to, to why he's there. Um, but he might get 40, 50 carries. I mean, who knows? It, it might be the, the Toa Tawa uh, and Devontae Lee show uh, because quarterback Nate Cox, you know, who, who is getting the start here is mostly known for being six, eight and being able to punt with both his right and left foot. So that's, that's really what you, you want. Know, your quarterback the, the, is a guy that can, punt <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, I, I watched a lot of Nevada this year and that, that did was he ever the, do it? You know, the thing that got mentioned, I don't know that I don't remember seeing him. I don't remember seeing him punt. I could look it up real quick. And, and didn't even do it. Uh, right. Did. I mean, uh, like, it's but, funny. He can punt with both feet. Never even did it, but he is six eight and a quarterback. So this is the ball game to do it. The most pointless <laughs> nonsense ever. To know. <laughs> uh, but but yeah, I mean, you know, in addition, that's that's just the guys on offense. I mean, uh, they've already had a really productive linebacker, Dan Henley, announced that he was transferring to Washington State. Uh, a couple of other, uh, you know, Lehman Toure uh, at linebacker is, is in the transfer portal as well. I mean, yeah, this, this Nevada team, and uh, despite some big-time name, you know, some, some uh, really, uh, you know, all-Mountain West-type guys, uh as far as we know, still planning on playing in this game, guys like Lawson Hall, uh, linebacker, defensive lineman, uh, Dom Peterson, Tristan Nichols, Sam Hammond, you know, really, really solid players for Nevada. Even with guys like that who we expect to be able to play, based on the the number of transfers, the number of opt-outs, and, you know, God forbid if, if there are any sort of COVID issues, how is – I just struggle to think Nevada's going to have enough players to play this game so yeah i would i would totally expect um and, and understand western michigan being favored in this game by a touchdown uh because the way we calculate uh our projections team performance and and this year's team performance counting most uh plays a big role it's weird in these situations because the nevada team that put those team performance numbers together is not the nevada team that we're going to see. So yes, we're on Nevada to cover. Uh, and it is an all three agree. Uh, but you know, it, it, it's a, it's a game that I certainly understand all signs are pointing toward Western Michigan because it's a pretty talented Western Michigan team. Caleb Elby at, at quarterback, uh, has had a good year. Ladarius Jefferson at running back and Sean Tyler, really, really good, uh, running back duo. Sky Moore has had some huge games this year at wide receiver for Western Michigan. Western Michigan has had a, a player enter the transfer portal, uh, starter Jalen Hall at, at receiver. Big time name and and, and uh, really talented guy. But compared to what Nevada's going through roster wise, I mean, it, it's not even close. And Western Michigan has some 
you know, solid defensive players as well. Ali Fayad has been one of the most productive defensive linemen in college football the last few years. Really, really good pass rusher. Ralph Holly in the middle of that uh, defensive line. Both of those guys, big, big reason why Western Michigan is seventh in our D-line performance ratings this season. Uh, and then on offense, I mean, Western Michigan is a, a top 25 offense. Uh, top 15 passing attack as far as team performance goes and a running game that probably is a little bit better than its 43rd ranking in our numbers. I mean, yards per play, this Western Michigan offense against FBS opponents ranks in the top 30 nationally points per drive. their 30th uh, yards per pass attempt. their 13th success rate. their 16th. Both of those uh, filtered for garbage time and then uh, EPA per play or PPA per play as it is on collegefootballdata.com uh, they're 23rd so this is a really really solid western michigan offense going up against a nevada defense that's without at least one of its best players uh but uh, you know i just i just struggle to to see nevada depth wise being able to to keep up with this my my hope is they can keep it close because again it's it's one that is an all three degree and, and we're on nevada to cover but absolutely all signs roster wise coaching change all of that point toward western michigan you know probably winning this game fairly easily our projection is uh 33 28 another over i you know that doesn't necessarily seem right because where the nevada points uh, going to come from unless they're able to break up, you know, some big runs with Tawa or if Dubs is is uh, playing in this game, if he and Nate Cox are able to connect on some big plays. I just don't have a whole lot of faith in that. So we're hoping Nevada can keep it close, but I certainly understand why Western Michigan is a touchdown favorite and, you know, why we, we uh, could expect Western Michigan to be a, able to open it up a little bit in this one. What do you think, Xavier? I mean, this is uh, an interesting game for sure. I mean, Definitely. I think at, at full strength, we'd say Nevada rolls, but uh, they are not at full strength. So what do we? Do you think Western Michigan can pull this off or are you rolling with Nevada? You got to, right? Like, like who? What? what is Nevada going to actually bring to the table feasibly that, that's ready to play in this game? A not only what eight uh, quarterback. The quarterback can who can put both, both feet. Yeah, right? Yeah. You know, like that's this is like this, that's – yeah, like okay, cool. So he's gonna stay out there for all four downs when they inevitably have to punt. <laughs> like that, that's that's what's gonna end up happening, you know? Because I, I just don't see, you know, the only thing I could see, funny enough, is like if Western Michigan knows all this information already and takes them lightly, you know, and, and Nevada comes out and punches them in the mouth with backups, you know, what a situation and what a fun situation I would end up becoming. Uh, you know, Nevada ends up winning with all of their backups and Romeo Dubs offensively, you know, they put up a, a class show against a, a Western Michigan who was taking them pretty lightly, but I don't see that happening. You know, there's an opportunity for Western Michigan to get a bold win, you know, and, and I genuinely think that that's what's going to end up happening. You know, I think Western Michigan is going to put on for the Mac who, and Nick, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, because this will be the second time in the podcast I've said it. Has the Mac won a bowl game yet? Not yet. They have not. So, yeah, so I, I think that here we go. This is, this is probably the best chance that they have right here, paying the baddest Essential sec, essential second streamers, uh, second streamers, second stringers in, in this game. So you know, I, I just don't see a way in which Nevada puts it all together. Like I said, unless Nick is right in their running game, just ends up being immaculate in this ball game, and they run it forty times a game or forty times in this game, and they just you know they're able to do it in that regard. But you know, you're looking at a Western Michigan team 
that regardless of the fact that Nevada is missing all of their pieces, is going to want to win this ball game and going to want to win it pretty handedly uh, and put everybody on notice. You know, you know, and I think that that's what Western Michigan is looking forward to in this game. Is at the end of the day, this is an opportunity for them to add another notch on their belt as far as bowl season is is concerned, especially for teams at the level of the MAC. These bowl games are an opportunity for as a barometer for them to see themselves against anybody else in the country. And regardless if they're playing against the backups. They've, you know, they, they, in the sense of Nevada, they've got nothing to lose. If they lose, then the fan base goes, well, we played our backups. If they win, well, the fan base goes, hey, we played our backups. So it's really on Western Michigan. It's very earnest on them to win this ballgame and win it pretty handedly, or if otherwise, the, you know, they won't be trolled like a, like a Florida was last year against Oklahoma. But there'll be some comments over there that if they don't play well against Nevada's backup offense for the most part, that they're definitely going to have some, some rumblings within that community. I might have to go ahead and, and follow. Western Michigan's bar stool, if they have one, just to see what kind of happens in that game, just in case, you know, West Nevada does come to play. You know, you know, <laughs> you kind of get a real feel of how the fan base is feeling after a game from their bar stool to an extent. But after that, you know, I, I kind of want to see what Nevada's team's able to do because for a large part, this will be what Nevada is, at least maybe to an extent next season, you know, to to, to yeah. a large extent, uh, unless they the recruiting class, you know, especially offensively comes in and hits the ground running. This will be a large part of what we talk about going into projections next year for Nevada. So this is, imp- this is an important game in that regard. Uh, I love one this thing game. that I, Go ahead. sorry, one thing I failed to mention, uh, Western Michigan has been a team that's lost some games that they shouldn't have. I mean, mm-hmm. this, this Western Michigan team beat Pitt, right? If, right. if they hadn't, uh, beat Pitt. We'd be talking about them in the college football playoff, but also they lost to uh, Central Michigan. They lost to Eastern Michigan, Ball State, Toledo. Um, you know they, they've they've in a lot of ways they're number two in our MAC power rankings behind only Toledo, but they've they've disappointed. They have come up short in games. They've uh, played some games a lot closer than they should have. Um, so there's there's a chance that this Western Michigan team, I, I mentioned a couple times a show, you know, uh, Team X is just, it's really, really hard to trust them. That's kind of Western Michigan for me right now. So, <laughs> you know, if if there's a team to come out and, and uh, disappoint and play a game that's probably much closer than it should be given the, the you know, outside scenarios, it could be Western Michigan, but hey, maybe this is also the time they put it all together and and you know right. win a game big that that they you know maybe could or should. So we'll see. Uh, the next one, I love this game, the Military Bowl, Boston College versus East Carolina. I think this is a great matchup on both sides of the ball because um, Boston College can stop the pass. East Carolina is a good passing team. Uh, they can run a little bit too, but but they're a good passing team. Holt Nailers um, is is a good QB. This is BC by three, 51 and a half is the over here. And uh, oppositely, you know, you have Boston College, who's not great on offense versus a not great defense in East Carolina. So both sides of this uh, game should be interesting to watch here, Nick. So how do we see the military ball playing out? We see this as a little more evenly matched than I would have expected. And, and when we were first going through and doing the early projections when the first uh, when the games were announced, I was a little surprised that Boston College, we did have favored, but by only 
basically like a point, point and a half early on. And, and you know, you, you think, okay, Boston College doesn't have uh, really, really high recruiting rankings. I mean, they rank in the, the 40s and 50s and even the 60s in, in uh, the, the uh, recent years. Things are trending in the right direction, certainly. But they don't, they don't have elite Power 5 talent, but still would expect a, a fairly decent talent edge over – East Carolina, who this is their first bowl game in quite a while. And, and yeah, they've got good players, as you mentioned. I mean, Holton Aylers, uh has a couple of, of really solid uh, receiving options. Um, you know, Tyler Sneed has had a, a really, really productive career. C.J. Johnson is shown flashes, hasn't quite uh, lived up the last couple of years to his true freshman season, but I think, you know, might have an NFL future. He's certainly physically imposing and, and uh, has a, a ton of ability. Keaton Mitchell, one of the fastest running backs in college football. Rajay Harris was an all uh, AAC player as a true freshman last year. So really solid running back combo, but still, you know, you, you would think that Boston college, would have a pretty big talent edge. And again, that that actual number that we put on it is double digit. So it was a little bit surprising uh, factoring everything else in that the you know projection ended up being so close because Boston College has upgraded its quarterback position. Phil Dracovic uh, was a, a uh, really high four-star rated quarterback when he signed at Notre Dame, came in, uh, transferred, Last year had a huge, huge year, but they've played most of the season without him. And I think that's a big reason why, you know, Boston College ranks 92nd in overall offensive team performance, 86th in passing team performance. But that's not really indicative of the Boston College team. It's not fully indicative, at least, of the Boston College team that we'll see in the bowl game because, you know, Dracovic's back and, and he has played a couple of games, hasn't looked 100%. His uh, hand, his wrist has not uh, looked, you know, maybe like it's it's 100%. Some balls have come out uh, floated or, or, you know, through a few more ducks than we would have expected. Um, but hopefully with a little extra time off, you know, maybe we'll start to see a little bit more of the Phil Dracovic that we saw in 2020. And hopefully the Phil Dracovic that, that we'll see in 2022 be a little more close to full strength. And big piece of news coming into this game, Zay Flowers, his top wide receiver, has announced that he'll be going back to BC uh, next year for his uh, senior seasons. So, you know, maybe, maybe we see, uh, like I said, a, a more healthy Phil Dracovic and a Zay Flowers who's looking to, to uh, take his game to a next level next season maybe they get that process started a little early and we see the boston college offense that we expect in the preseason you know get a little bit of a taste of what we'll expect in 2020 but you know running game you would have expected with drakovic out that maybe they would have had a little more success but able to lean on the running game a little bit more uh but their you know starter coming in travis levy didn't quite hold down the job pat garwo actually emerged as a uh, you know their number one option at least in the the second half of the season, he's solid. But the offensive line, which we expected to be a real strength, I mean they've got three guys who have all ACC uh, you know all ACC recognition in their past, returned five full time starters from last year's group. 
they rank 97th in O-line performance, so they just haven't quite been able to get it going. And and part of that's the quarterback issue, but, you know, the offensive line is is certainly a little bit to blame there as well. Defensively, you mentioned against the pass is definitely the strength for Boston College. They rank 33rd in offensive – or excuse me, in defensive passing team performance, 63rd against the run, uh, which is still, you know, among – the the higher rankings of the teams that we've talked about so far today, but relatively uh, middle of the pack overall, but still slightly better than East Carolina, whose defense took a big, big step forward in 2020, uh, but has kind of, you know, not really taken that full further step in 2021. They rank 80th in defensive team performance overall, 58th against the pass and 93rd against the run. So if Dracovic is fully healthy, you know, then then uh, that might give them a little bit more of a test. But that pass defense for East Carolina, who I should mention, Daquan McMillan, corner, All-American corner, 100-rated player, uh, according to our individual player ratings, and somebody who I think does have, uh, you know, an NFL future. Not big, but he is incredibly productive and, and really, really good corner. Might be the best overall player in this game. Uh, but, you know, with, with him and the rest of that, uh, secondary, which is the strength of that defense. They could give Flowers, could give Drakovic a little bit of trouble, but I think hopefully uh, we'll get a little bit closer to that uh, Boston College offense at, at full strength that we expected in, in the season. So uh, a lot of rambling there, I'm sure, but uh, going back to our projection, it's, it's pretty close. It's closer than I would have expected, and it's closer than I would think this game could be Again, if Boston College is is able to, or Djokovic specifically, is able to to play up to his uh, level and, and full health of, of what we expected coming into the year. But 29-27 is our uh, predicted final score. That's a pretty heavy lean on the over. Um, and I don't know exactly how, how to feel about that. BC's played uh, some lower scoring games in the second half of the season. We'll, we'll, we'll have to see on that, but uh, do expect a good game, close game, and kind of a, a lot of uncertainty. Not really sure, you know, what, what that BC team is going to look like, uh, but hopefully, again, finally, we'll, we'll get a little bit of a taste of what we can expect in 2022 and more, you know, what we expected to see in, in 2021, but a, a close game, close projection in this one. Xavier, how do you yeah. see this this game playing out? Because this is going to be an interesting one. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with what Nick is saying. I think that this is going to be a close game. But I also think that this is is really as close as Jerkovic wants to keep it, to be honest with you. I think Nick made an excellent point bringing up the fact that he hasn't necessarily had that game yet where you feel like he's back. And maybe this is the game he does it, right? Maybe this is the game that he figures out, you know, that, that you know he's throwing less ducks. Uh, per se, right? He, he comes in and he's playing a little bit better, right? I think you could expect that out of a guy who's been so consistent in his career, you know, that he is expected to come in and play a little bit better than what he's been able to give them over the last three games. And, and I mean, it hasn't been terrible. Don't get me wrong, right? The, the Wake Forest game was pretty was pretty abysmal. Um, but FSU and, and Georgia Tech weren't terrible performances for him. Uh, Georgia Tech in particular, he threw 310 yards, two touchdowns. That was a really good game from him. Uh, and in that game in particular, the offense, the defense didn't really step up at all. It was 41 to 30 was the final score. That's the kind of game that I think they're going to need for them to win. Uh, I think they're going to need a, a very, you know, 
poised performance from him where, you know, in that game in particular, he threw 13 of 20, uh, 210, uh, excuse me, 310 yards. I think you're going to see something like that. Once again, you're going to see a lot of big plays from Boston college where they allow Yurkovich to give, they give him an opportunity to throw the ball deep. And if not, then if it's not there, then it's not there. Right. And I think that's the best way of going about it with him, uh, especially right now, as he's reacclimating himself back into the offense that, okay, we're going to take a deep shot after we run the ball a couple of times. And if it's not there, then throw it away. Or we'll fight for another down. What they don't want from him in this game, and I think this is what maybe East Carolina could do with such an explosive offense, is they don't want him to have him throw the ball 35, 30, 35 times. And I think if East Carolina can really get the horses going with that, without how explosive the offense has been this year, then that's the kind of game that I, I like East Carolina in, right? I like them in a, in a shootout where whereas Holton Aylers versus Phil Yurkovich at this point, uh, you know, maybe. If you know Phil was in a situation where he had played all season, maybe I'd like Boston College a little bit more from that offensive perspective. But if East Carolina can turn it into a boat race, which by all you know, I think they can, then I like East Carolina in this matchup. Um, I just don't think that Boston College has enough horses to run with with, with East Carolina. I, I'll be completely honest with you; I just don't see them being able to go the distance with them if this ends up being a shootout. When we've seen a lot of shootouts in these bowl games so far, and I think this doesn't change in this ball game. that if Boston College is going to win, they're going to have to make sure that, that, that you know, Yurkovich has time for one. So uh, obviously alluded to what Nick said about the offensive line. But two, that Yurkovich takes care of the football. You know, in the three games he's been back, he's thrown three interceptions, right? His, his numbers in those three games so far, he's thrown four touchdowns, three interceptions. He's going to have to be better than that if he's going to beat East Carolina. And I, I'm not sure that he will be. I'm going to go with East Carolina in this game to win. I think that offense is going to be too much for Boston College. And I think that if we, if East Carolina can get out early, which they've been able to do in some of these games, right? They've had some pretty big first quarters. That's going to put – uh, Boston College in a situation where they feel maybe that pressed to throw the football, and I think that's exactly what East Carolina wants them to do. You know, East, uh, and so I think East Carolina wins this game. I think Holton Aylers, uh, who's been a pretty good quarterback for a while now, you know, uh, is able to do it on more of a national stage, and so everybody too. And, and this is a team that I, I think you know in, in East Carolina has been pretty impressive at points in this year. Obviously, they've had some poor games, but this is a team that when you look back on it. It could have beat South Carolina. They almost beat Houston. You know, that that game took overtime for them to beat uh, earlier this year, right? This is a team that in their losses, they weren't blowouts, you know, barring the one game against Cincinnati. And so I think that East Carolina is a team that you're definitely looking at like, okay, this is a team that should win this game in my, in my opinion. So I like East Carolina. Yeah, it's going to be a fun game, I think, uh, for sure. Uh, Moving on to the Birmingham Bowl, Houston versus Auburn. Auburn's a a two-and-a-half-point favorite. 51-and-a-half is the over-under here. Houston kind of been accused on of quitting in these bowl games the last couple of years. Lost to Hawaii last year as a favorite. Got smashed by Army 70-14 to the year before that, Nick. How do we uh, see this Birmingham Bowl playing out for Houston and Auburn? Uh, that's a that's a really interesting point. I I think, uh, yeah, I, I I think in years past we have seen some pretty embarrassing performances from Houston uh, in bowl games, but I do also think that this is a different Houston team. I mean, at the end of the regular season, they were ranked uh, in the top ten nationally in defensive team performance. We talked a lot about that in the you know lead up to. Uh, the American Conference Championship game against Cincinnati. They won 11 games. They won 11 straight, actually, after losing uh, the the opener against Texas Tech and, and then ran the table 
through the regular season before uh, losing to, you know, playoff participant Cincinnati. So overall, really, really impressive regular season, better than any of those uh, teams that you mentioned in bowl games. But, you know, yeah, I mean, thing, things are a little bit different during bowls. And, and sometimes, whether it's a, a, a head coach or, or, you know, coaching staff, not really doing a, a good job of preparation in the lead up, whether it's the way they structure practice or uh, what have you. I mean, there, there, there's a, a lot different in the extra time uh, leading up to a bowl game and the way you prepare. And sometimes, for whatever reason, some teams just don't really, uh, you know, it, it just doesn't really work out uh, necessarily for, for whatever reason. Houston will be without its best player in this game. Marcus Jones, the All-American corner and return man, has opted out to prepare for the NFL draft. Uh, also contributed a little bit on offense as a receiver, but I believe he's the only player, he's, he's at least the only one, uh, no, excuse me, Logan Hall, uh, defensive lineman, probably their second best overall uh, defensive player, has, has also opted out of this game. But uh, the offense... Uh, you know, seems to be intact. Quarterback Clayton Toon, running back Alton McCaskill. I know he's been a little bit banged up. True freshman running back, one of the best, uh, if not the best, from just a, a pure numbers standpoint, true freshman running back we've seen this season. Uh, well, Travion Henderson, I guess. But McCaskill, very, very good, of course. Uh, and then Nathaniel Dale at, at wide receiver, uh, their, their top go-to guy there, you know, Makes me think that that the Houston offense will be uh, close to full strength, at least that passing attack close to full strength, which was a top 20 unit uh, in our team performance rating, 17th uh, passing offense. And even though McCaskill very productive, the rushing offensive team performance, they only rank 74th. So maybe they're a, a little bit better uh, or have the, the ability to be a little bit better than that number would indicate. Part of the issue has been an offensive line that ranked 116th in our O-line performance numbers so far this season. Uh, a little bit disappointing there, but um, still a, a team that is, you know, got the potential to uh, put up some points and, and good enough offense to win 11 regular season games. Defensively has been the strength, but without its two best defensive players, you know, is this still a top 10 defense mm, that, that, that's difficult to say, and they'll be taking a, a little bit of a uh, an increase outside of, of Cincinnati, but a little bit of an increase from a uh, talent standpoint compared to most of the teams that they faced in Auburn. However, Auburn dealing with its own, you know, opt out uh, numbers as well, including two of its best defensive players, cornerback Roger McCreary, who. I believe uh, I've heard a little bit, you know, a buzz that makes him a potential first round, at least uh, first few rounds uh, NFL draft pick. They'll also be without Zucobi McLean. Both of those guys are 100 max rated players in our individual player ratings. So both Auburn and Houston will be without uh, a couple of 100 rated defenders. And then Auburn also will be without its starting right tackle, Rodarius Ham, who has opted out and will prepare for the NFL draft. Starting center Nick Brahms, so two offensive linemen actually will be out because Brahms had uh, a surgery uh, just after the regular season ended, and so he won't be able to play there as well. So potentially that Auburn, or excuse me, that Houston defense could be able to uh, sort of 
you know, show its its full strength uh, based on that shorthanded Auburn offense. Uh, excuse me, offensive line. Offense as a whole, I guess, is pretty true because Bo Nix was first injured, wasn't going to play in this game, but has since left. TJ Finley, who was a little bit banged up at the end of the season, will get the start. I'm curious to see if we might get a, a look at uh, Demetrius Davis. Really uh, had a an excellent, excellent high school career in the state of Texas. Hasn't gotten any playing time so far this year, but there was some – uh, you know, some reports that he's getting more reps in practice and maybe we'll get to see a little bit of him in this game. I'd, I'd be intrigued by that. But then also, you know, what is what does the situation look like at running back? Because right after, uh, you know, just what hours after Bo Nix uh, entered the transfer portal, Tank Bigsby announced that he was going to enter the transfer portal. Wasn't very long after that that he said that oh no actually I'm 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 not going to leave but are we going to get to see uh, a, a full you know Tank Bigsby are we going to see more of Jacquez Hunter who's been another really impressive true freshman running back um just kind of kind of curious to see how that all plays out but we're seeing a talented Auburn team they rank 32nd in roster strength uh, you know, top 25 on the defensive side of the ball in roster strength, of course, SEC recruiting classes, consistent top, you know, 20 uh, for most of the last several years. Uh, last year was a, a transition year. They ranked 27th in our recruiting strength ratings. But, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about top 15 classes for years and years prior to that. So very, very talented Auburn team, even though they only rank – uh, 49th in offensive team performance, 25th overall. They rank 30th in our overall power rankings, but it's the 500 team, six and six in the regular season, three and five. Uh, so it's it's a, a bit of a contrast, a, a power five versus group of five matchup, uh, a really, really successful group of five team against a power five team that is, you know, struggled, been a little bit disappointing, dealing with some injuries, dealing with some roster issues, uh, but also just from a pure talent standpoint has a pretty significant advantage there. They would be Auburn would be a 16 and a half point favorite in our talent edge projections if talent were the only thing that matters, but it doesn't. And Houston's team performance so far this season plays a, a pretty big plays a pretty big role. And, and this is actually the first one we've talked about today where we think the wrong team is favored. We actually have Houston as a favorite, have them as a, a decent, you know, Pretty significant favorite, almost three, uh, excuse me, almost four points, 3.87 points in our projections. It's not an all three agree because of the talent edge, but our stats only model uh, sees it as a virtual toss up. So sees uh, Houston, you know, covering in that situation as well. The projection is 30-26 with Houston coming out on top. That's another over. We've had been on overs on, on all games to date so far. That'll change here in just a second. But uh, see it as potentially a little higher scoring and with four of the best uh, defensive players in the game not playing then you know, that makes a, a certain amount of sense, I suppose. But we are on Houston to cover the two and a half and actually to pull out the outright upset, uh, 30 to 26 being that final score prediction. I mean, it boils down to Houston is the better team. Auburn's probably the more talented team, Xavier. So who wins the Birmingham Bowl? 
Yeah, I don't even know if, all, if you know, maybe due to our numbers, but I don't even know if Auburn's a more talented team with all the people that they're losing, right? I, I just think that this Auburn team has yet to hit its full stride. I think they're going to be reeling a little bit from the Iron Bowl. I think that that was a loss that is going to stick with them for a minute. To be perfectly honest with you, that was Brian Harson's first Iron Bowl and having an opportunity like they did to essentially knock Alabama out of the college football playoff, possibly. Uh, and that, that was that's, that's a game I think may, may linger a little bit. You know, Nick didn't uh, – Nick didn't uh, mention, but the other other player that they lost was Sean Shivers. He's gone. Uh, he, he he transferred to Indiana. Uh, so that's another talented player on their team that they will not have in this bowl game too. So, that, I mean, I just don't know what Auburn's offense is going to even look like. We talked about it. We jokingly said it with Nevada, but genuinely speaking with Auburn, it's kind of the same thing, right? We're going to be looking seeing a lot of TJ Finley, on, you know, and seeing what he's able to do in that four-quarter ball game. I think Houston showed me a lot, even though they lost to Cincinnati, uh, Cincinnati pulling away in that second half. They showed me a ton in that game. So, uh, Houston competed for, for three quarters and, and really gave Cincinnati everything that he possibly could. They, they gave them haymaker after haymaker. And eventually Cincinnati was just able to, you know, uh, was just better and, and was able to kind of just pull away there at the end. But I really liked what I saw from Houston in that ball game, And I doubt that they'll play down in this game because it is an SEC opponent. Beating the SEC is still beating the SEC, regardless of what team it is. Whenever a team, you know, you'll hear it. Whenever an SEC team wins over a, a G5 school or even a, 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 another Power 5 conference, the SEC chants ring out throughout the stadium. So it's going to be the complete opposite. If Houston's able to win this ballgame, it'll be an opportunity for them to uh, beat a, a P5 team that many team people won't probably look into the fact that Auburn's missing literally all of these pieces at the end of the day, it'll be Houston beating Auburn. And that's all that they're going to, you know, that, that's all that they're playing for at that regard. So I, I love Houston in this game. I like Houston big to be perfectly honest with you in this game. I, I think Houston wins this game by 10 points. Plus I don't think Auburn is able to do much with, with, with what Houston's able to do. I think you're going to really see Clayton Toon take a next step uh, as a quarterback, not this year uh, going into next year. I think he, has a little bit of a coming out party this game. He had he, he kind of put everybody on notice in the AAC championship in his ability not only to pass but to also run. Uh, he's been hampered a little bit by an injury this year that I think has stopped him from running as much as he maybe had wanted to. But I think in this game he's going to need to, and I think uh, he's going to show that him and McCaskill back there are, 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 are you know to, are to be feared coming into next year. And, and I think Houston can make a case in this game if they were to you know really handle Auburn on both sides of the football that they might be one of the best teams, if not the best team in the AAC with uh, with how much Cincinnati is losing going into 2022. And I think this is an opportunity for them to really put a stamp and, and you know start to create that buzz as we move into the 2022 season. All right, let's go over to the first responders bowl, Air Force versus Louisville. Louisville, one and a half point favorite here, 55 and a half. And uh, Nick, this game's going to come all the way down to one thing. Can Louisville stop Air Force run game? Because if they can, I think they win big. If they can't, I think they get rolled over. And I think this game boils down to that uh, statistic specifically. How, how, who do you think wins this game? Uh, well, you know, that that's a pretty good way of looking at it because I was just getting ready to say that this is, in my opinion, the toughest game to project because, you know, Air Force is so unique the way they make up their or, or you know, they're not unique in the in the sense that Army and Navy have similar uh, makeup as far as their roster goes. But when they play a team like Louisville, Power 5 opponent, who's going to have a huge, huge talent edge. I mean, Louisville only ranks 49th in roster strength, but when you compare that to Air Force, who ranks 119th, 
you know, that that gap is just absolutely massive. And so when we uh, take our talent edge projections, we would have Louisville favored by four touchdowns in, you know, if talent were the only thing that matters. But of course, it doesn't because Air Force is, uh, you know, doesn't doesn't rely on on being the more physically imposing team or, or more athletic team. They run a, a version of the triple option and they run it really, really well. They have gotten good play from Zeke Daniels this year at quarterback. He has been banged up. And so will we see Warren Bryan, who's also had some injury issues? Will we see Zach Larrier, who is, uh, uh, you know, talk about guys who are talented. I mean, he is a, a sprinter type uh, track athlete and, and could really give them a, a boost athletically at the quarterback position. But, you know, they do lean really heavily on Brad Roberts, running back, fullback, uh, Emmanuel Michelle, DeAndre Hughes has had a really big second half of the season. Uh, guys like Brandon Lewis and Micah Davis, who play wide receiver and slot back, and and you know have had big moments. Davis has been injured most recently, but uh, you know, with the with the layoff, will we get to see him? Uh, not sure. But offense, you know, it, it's just very consistent. For Air Force, they rank seventh in our rushing team performance numbers. They rank 29th overall when they do choose to pass because they run so much. They have the ability to hit some big plays in the passing game. And they also play really, really good defense. Air Force ranks 21st in our overall defensive team performance. They rank top 30 against the pass and top 40 against the run. They've got, you know, uh, they've got a 100 rated player in defensive end. Jordan Jackson. They've got two linebackers in the 90s. Uh, DeMonte Meeks, former All-Mountain West player. And then Vince Sanford's had a huge, huge season at linebacker for Air Force. So, you know, they've, they've got players that, I've said this before, but might have been, you know, two-star or unrated recruits coming out of high school. And because they can re- get dozens of players each year, they're going to have the ability to, to uh, get a hidden gem every once in a while who ends up being a a really, really solid uh, performer for them. But just as far as the the average uh, player rating and and things like that, and the fact that Air Force teams are generally really, really experienced, really heavily on uh, seniors and and first-year players, they just don't quite build up the production points over the course of their career, like other teams do the way we calculate things. So they're just going to be a big, big talent disadvantage, but air force is consistent. And so I, I really, you know, kind of think uh, that, that I really think they can and, and maybe should win this game. I know Louisville is a slight favorite and our projection actually has Louisville as a little bit bigger favorite. We have them as, as over a field goal favorite. Uh, so to cover the one and a half and if Malik Cunningham gets going, then yeah, I mean, you know, maybe, maybe that talent edge will show itself because we've seen Cunningham against some weaker, uh, less talented teams. That Duke game was just absolutely incredible i mean the box score uh video game numbers doesn't even describe it really um but who else is is going to show up you know will uh the the receiving core is going to look a lot different for for malik davis the transfers they've already had jordan watkins transfer out and land at Ole miss 
they've they've lost other guys in recent weeks. Uh, just before we started recording on the defensive side of the ball, starting corner Greedy Vance entered the transfer portal. That was already a, a pretty thin position for Louisville. So now you've got to get somebody uh, you know ready to play a unique offense who maybe wasn't even expecting to, to you know start in the game. So um, Louisville ranks 12th in offensive team performance. They rank top 20 uh, rushing. So even though Air Force is is going to try to limit Louisville's possessions, even though um, you know Air Force does have a, a just solid uh, uh, resume defensively, I think Louisville is going to be able to, to get some big plays, have opportunities to score. But as you mentioned, on the other side of the football, will they be able to stop that Air Force running game? Not only is it something that they haven't seen this season, uh, something they haven't seen in a while, that Louisville rush defense has been the major, major weakness. They rank 99th in rushing defensive team performance. So this is a really tough game. Our model doesn't do a great job, uh, you know, in, in games like this where you have a power five opponent and a service academy. It's just, you know, it, it's, it's a unique matchup that we can't really uh, quite, you know, I, I just don't feel good away about the way our projections necessarily uh, work in, in these types of matchups. So I don't have very much confidence in this, but we do have Louisville uh, winning and covering by a field goal, 29-26. That is our first under, but just barely. Um, but this is a game that could go any way. I mean, could could Malik Cunningham put up 400 yards and five touchdowns? Yeah. You know, could Air Force absolutely uh, just shut him down? Maybe. I mean, he's been a little inconsistent. Will Air Force be able to just rack up 400 rushing yards and control the ball and, and win this game uh, by two touchdowns? Yeah, maybe. Will Louisville's defense, because it is more talented, and they've had extra time to prepare, maybe be able to, to uh, limit that Air Force uh, rushing attack, especially if, you know, uh, Daniels isn't able to play at quarterback. Maybe. I mean, this game could go in a variety of different ways. Uh, we're, we're hoping because of our projection that Louisville is going to be able to cover. But my gut tells me that, that this is a game that maybe, you know, maybe we should should have Air Force as a favorite. This game, Xavier, I mean, um, it's an interesting one. I, like I said, I think it's going to boil down to can Louisville stop Air Force's running game, and I don't think there's a lot of gray area here. I either think Louisville will and the win going away, or I think Air Force will control the clock. I mean, number one team in uh, rushing yards by 55 over Army and number one in time of possession. So I think this game is just uh, pretty black and white and not a lot of gray area here. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that one. I really think that when you look at this ball game, it's going to be really tough for for Louisville. Uh, I just when you play a service academy, it just never feels like enough time. Just it just never feels like enough time to prepare for that triple option. And, and genuinely, and you hear this all the time from defensive coordinators when they talk about the triple option. Everybody just fill their gaps, right? Like they make it seem so simple. Everybody just do their job and let the other guys do theirs. It never works out that way. 
you end up trying to reach and scrape over to cover for a guy who didn't get off the ball fast enough or who has to hit the right gap or something like that. And, and it never ends up in a situation where everybody just fills their gaps correctly and you dominate them. Right. On top of that, when you talk about an Air Force team, you're going to talk about the fact that the time of possession is going to be huge in this ballgame. And I think Air Force is going to do a really good job of making sure that Malik Cunningham feels pressure on the fact that he has to score when he gets the ball. You know, when, when you put especially a guy like Malik Cunningham under that much pressure, you've seen it before this year, as Nick alluded to, he's been inconsistent at times. And I think that, that those inconsistencies will show themselves in this ballgame as I just from him, I, I would love to see more from him when it comes to passing the football. And I just have not seen him take that leap that I think maybe in the preseason, a lot of people had him, you know, coined as a guy who could take a massive leap in this year. And he just has not been able to do that. You know, whether that's not been because of, you know, uh, he hasn't had an out and out, you know, number one receiver this year, possibly maybe that's because of the offensive line hasn't been the greatest at all times, but he just has not been able to take that next step. And I think when you look at how things are going to go in the running game, look at, look, you, you go back and look at the Louisville Kentucky game. Kentucky ran all over them, and it wasn't even just from the running back. Will Levis, who I wouldn't call a, a supreme athlete in any stretch of the imagination, was able to run for 113 yards against them in that ball game, and that's not going to cut it if you're if you're allowing the you know the opposing quarterback to run for 113 yards. Uh, Kentucky won that ball game without throwing a passing touchdown. If that doesn't sound like what Air Force is going to want to do in this game, then that's you know then. then I don't know what you're looking at because I think Air Force at the end of the day is going to run the football. They're going to make sure that the time of possession is on their side and they're going to force this Louisville team to, to get creative, to run different types of blitzes. And then at some point, Air Force is going to throw a pop pass. That's probably going to go for 45 yards and a touchdown because that's what they're good at. That's what they do. And, and that's their identity. And, and I feel like for Louisville, the problem with them all season is the fact that they have not been able to have a consistent identity week in and week out. Some weeks they look really good. Right. So like against uh, Boston College earlier in the year, defense looked pretty good. Running game looked excellent. Passing game struggled. They have been been consistent where I've seen all phases of their of their team just give you a a, a solid team victory. And so I think that that's why I'm going to go with Air Force here. I think Air Force is going to win this game pretty handedly. I think when you talk about talent in this kind of game, it's diminished a little bit because when you play a triple option, your talent can only do so much when you're rushing in, in lanes created by the offense. It's really difficult for like one guy on your defense to run buckshot over a triple option because what they'll do, they'll just run it directly. They'll run it in his, uh, you know, run it his way. And now he'll, he'll be caught up in all of the mess and he won't be able to wreck shop like he'd be able to typically do in a situation where he's able to just rush up field one-on-one against a tackle or beat a double team inside. Now he's got to beat, you know, a, a cut block possibly, or even, you know, a, a, a guard that decides to pull. And now you're struggling to, you know, to sift through all the trash to get to the ball carrier and, and so things like that. I just think with Air Force, they're just so well, you know, grilled in this that they're just going to be able to dominate Louisville on the ground. And this is just going to be an ugly game. And this is just not a really good matchup for a Louisville team who defensively is not good at stopping the run. Yeah, it's going to be um, an interesting one for sure. But I, I do think it's going to be, I think that's going to be one where you're checking a different channel halfway through because either Air Force or Louisville is dominating. Uh, Mississippi State versus Texas Tech. Uh, Mississippi State in the Liberty Bowl. Mississippi State a 9.5-point favorite. 59.5 is the over. Nick, I'll just tell you, I think Mississippi State beats Texas Tech going away in this game. 
I don't think it's close. I think there's a lot of bitterness there from Mike Leach. I think he wants to get uh, a little bit of revenge. I know he said it's not personal, but that's what everybody says. So uh, I think Mississippi State wins this one going away. How do you see it playing out? Well, our projection is pretty much in line with what the odds makers and, and the market have. Uh, Mississippi State say, uh, what, nine and a half point favorite. Our projection is 9.31. So we do see a, a fairly comfortable uh, Mississippi State win. But but me personally, I kind of I kind of disagree. I mean, you know, almost double digits against another Power 5 team. And Mississippi State has, you know, an SEC roster. They do rank uh, in the top 25 in our roster strength numbers, top 30 on both sides of the football. But that's still still not necessarily a huge uh, talent advantage over a Texas Tech team that, you know, top 50 in roster strength. So that that seems like a pretty good gap. But Texas Tech is, I don't know. I mean, they've, they've got good players too. And, and they... Uh, are at a disadvantage at the quarterback position, I will say. Uh, it seems like they are going to start Donovan Smith, retro freshman, again uh, because you know Texas Tech's top two quarterbacks have been hurt. Tyler Shuck missed basically uh, you know the, the two thirds of the season, and, and Henry Columbia's been out for a while uh, in November after after missing uh, some time with an illness. But yeah, I mean you know Mississippi State. Has been rolling with Will Rogers. They've they've been playing really well, especially on the offensive side of the ball in the second half of the season. But I just don't see a huge huge gap, quite honestly. Uh, I know Mackay Polk has stepped up and and been one of the success stories of uh, the transfer portal. But Mississippi State's you know they're they're going to be without a few players as well. Uh, left tackle Charles Cross. I haven't heard specifically if he's opting out of the game, but I do be, I do know that he's um, declared for the NFL draft. And so far in, in the last couple of weeks, that's been really highly correlated with not playing in the game. Same for Martin Emerson, starting corner. Um, he's uh, off to the NFL, not officially opted out of the game, but uh, it wouldn't shock me if he doesn't play. And then they've had a starting linebacker leave. Aaron Brule uh, is transferred to Michigan State. So, you know, Mississippi State's not necessarily at, at full strength, though, uh, you know, still still does, uh, still rightly favored, I should say, based on the roster makeup, based on the way they've been playing. I just don't necessarily see a, a huge, huge gap there. But uh, to no one's surprise, Mississippi State's, Passing offense is its strength. They rank 34th in passing team performance. That's probably a good bit lower than you would have expected based on just the raw statistics. The rushing team performance numbers, they rank 119th. So not going to be uh, a shock that uh, they're probably not going to run you know, super well uh, in the bowl game, probably pass for 300 yards. But that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to blow out Texas Tech, in, in my opinion. Defensively, Top 25-ish defense. They rank 26th in defensive team performance overall, 23rd against the run, susceptible at times against the pass. They rank 69th in uh, passing defensive team performance. On the other hand, Texas Tech's offensive strength so far this year has been uh, against the pass. Eric Uzakanma, 
one of the better wide receivers in the country. Kalen Geiger's had some nice moments in his first year as a transfer. Miles Price and tight end Travis Kuntz as well. So even with a backup quarterback, I think Texas Tech, you know, will will be able to move the ball through the air. And I think their their uh, running game has the potential to be a little bit better than they rank 57th in, in offensive rushing team performance. But Sharadrick Thompson and Taj Brooks have both had their moments. Uh, Brooks more so in the, the beginning of this year. It's just, you know, what is what is the defense going to do? Because Texas Tech does rank 122nd in passing defensive team performance, 97th overall. I mean, it, it's 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 not a great matchup. I will give you that. So I, I just I don't see a, a huge gap there. Maybe it's wishful thinking because we're on Texas Tech to cover. Uh, but our our final score prediction is uh, Mississippi State winning 34-25. That seems probably a little low. Uh, we are on the under on that one, but yeah, I, I think I think Texas Tech is going to be able to keep it uh, to one possession or, or thereabouts. Even though our our uh, prediction is or our projection is is very very close to what the odds makers have in, in the nine and a half. What do you, what do you think of this one, uh, Xavier? I mean, it, it's uh, an interesting one, but I mean, I, I still, I'm going to stand. I think Mississippi State. Close the door. Same, same, same. Okay. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I absolutely think so. Uh, Texas Tech's defense has been porous this year, and Mississippi State, for 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 their record, they've played rather well at points at this year. Obviously, you know the the, the massive comeback versus Auburn uh, earlier in uh, later on in the year. You know, in that Mississippi game, yes, they lost, but I felt like they were still in it. You know, obviously that game came down to a fourth quarter barrage from both teams. You know, they pretty they they held Matt Corral in check, which is going to be very important. You know, with Texas Tech because obviously Texas Tech is going to lean on that passing game. You know, they lost to three by Arkansas late in that ball game as well. You know, so this Mississippi State team, for their record, you know, they lost to an LSU team earlier in the year. They lost to Memphis. That's another one. For the for for so for all intents and purposes, you look at this Mississippi State team and seven and five may be their record, but this team could easily be nine and three. You know, uh, you know, even better if you really look at some of the games that they lost down the stretch. So I, I really like Mississippi State in this game. I think they found some rhythm. Will Rogers for you know for even the the bad games in which he's had this year has been pretty darn good, and I think it's going to be a guy that you definitely look to build on going into next year. More importantly, I think this is just a good matchup for. Uh, for Mike Leach, I think this is a stylistically, this is a good matchup from him and Texas Tech. And I think, you know, with that being the case, I think Mississippi State's able to do a lot of what they can't do in the SEC, just throwing the ball, you know, throwing the ball 50 times. That's what the, you know, that's what the Big 12 does on a regular basis. And so I think that that's what, you know, Mike Leach is going to do in this ballgame. Will Rogers will probably throw the ball 63 times. I think there should be an over-under. That should probably be a, be a prop bet to see how many times he actually throws the football. I think his high this year is like maybe 70. So, you know, we'll see. Uh, but I like Mississippi State in this game. They're the most talented team, and Texas Tech's defense has been very porous at times this year. You know, uh, if any offense has struggled, you play Texas Tech. And, and this team – and Mississippi State's offense has not struggled nearly as much as some of the teams that Texas Tech has played this year uh, offensively. And, I, and so I'm going to go with Mississippi State in this game uh, uh, to win and cover. The guaranteed rate bowl – or excuse me, the holiday bowl. Uh, UCLA <laughs> versus NC State. I'm skipping ahead here. UCLA versus NC State. NC State is a one-point favorite. 60-and-a-half is the over-under here. Uh, I'm taking NC State just because I think they're a little more well-balanced, but UCLA is a good squad. This is a tough one to pick, Nick. 
You're probably right because this is an all three agree and the wrong team favored <laughs> with UCLA. So we're high on UCLA, our projections. Uh, they're they're 10th in our power rankings. That surprises me now every time I see it. But, you know, there's a lot of talent on this team. They rank fourth in overall roster strength and third on the offensive side of the ball. Uh, Dorian Thompson Robinson's a, a 100 rated player. Uh, so is running back Jack Charbonnet. They've got two really really highly rated receivers and Kyle Phillips and tight end Greg Dulcich. The offensive line has another hundred rated player and left tackle Sean Ryan. And the offensive line has played at a top 25 level this season. Defensively, uh, it, it I know uh, Antonio uh, Agbania is declared for the NFL draft. I'm not sure if he will uh, opt out of this game. We don't currently have him listed as an opt out. Uh, but that defensive line has been a little bit of a weak spot. They rank 86th in uh, those performance numbers this season, and the defense as a whole actually ranks 82nd in defensive team performance, 61st against the pass, 76th against the run. Uh, contrast that with an offense that is top 10. I mean, seventh in offensive team performance, third rushing, uh, and top 50 passing, even though you know, Thompson Robinson has had some ups and downs, uh, still highly talented player, does have the ability, I think, to state, which is a, a similarly really highly rated team. I mean, they're top 15 in our power rankings. So we this is our a top 15 matchup uh, by far, you know, the, the best matchup that we've talked about in both season as far as our uh, power rankings go. But UCLA is just a, a little bit better at each uh, position. Devin Leary is a 92 rated player. Uh, Zonovan Knight and Ricky Pearson, 94, 91. Uh, Emeka Mezzi, 97, you know, so, but, but they're a little bit of a drop off uh, with the guys behind him, you know, not that number two option, like Greg Dulcich at tight end, uh, Dylan Parham, only a, you know, 80 rated player uh, or thereabouts for NC State. Defensively, NC State has been playing really, really well. They're ranked 13th in defensive team performance, top 25, both against the pass and the run. Uh, and they've got some, you know, some solid defensive statistics to back it up. They rank third nationally in success rate allowed, filtered for garbage time against FBS opponents only. They're ranked eighth in yards per pass attempt against FBS opponents, 16th in EPA per play, 16th in points per drive, 20th in yards per pass, uh, or excuse me, yards per play allowed. So this is the best defense that we've talked about uh, with the possible exception of Houston, but I think, I think it's it's potentially a, even a little bit better, more rounded, well-rounded unit, especially since I haven't heard of any defensive opt-outs. So uh, this this is a you know strength versus strength, that UCLA offense against the NC State defense. It's just, will we see, uh, you know, will Devin Leary, will Donovan Knight, Ricky Pearson, and Mecca Mezzi be able to really test that UCLA defense where they, you know, have an opportunity uh, to to match up, I think, decently well there. But as I said, UCLA is favored according to our projections. Uh, we're right on the total, so we're slightly under the sixty and a half. And I, I think I'd rather be on that side of it. Uh, but we do have UCLA favored to win, winning outright, and all three models uh, have UCLA. Uh, covering the, the one point, but uh, 31-29 is, is that final score prediction. But, you know, at the very least, uh, the best matchup that, that we've talked about yet. Uh, what do you think, Xavier? I mean, this is, uh, 
This is a fun game here. Uh, I mean, it's going to be a, a real close one. Who do you think uh, comes away with it? Yeah, I think you really have to boil it down to quarterback play. And it's what a quarterback can take care of the football the most, right? And for me, I think both quarterbacks are susceptible to giving you a pick a game. Uh, Devin Leary is coming off of one hell of a performance against North Carolina where, you know, we, we saw the kind of the heroics he had to pull off in that game and win. Uh, but I, I, I like – I like UCLA in this game. I, I really do. I like DTR. And, and more importantly, the reason why I do is I think I, I like his ability to escape the pocket a little bit better. Uh, right. You know, I, I think that in, in this situation, I think you're going to, you know, when two teams are such evenly matched, you're going to have to look for uh, something that really puts the other team over the edge. And with the quarterback play in particular, I think DTR's ability to get out of the pocket and make plays with his legs is really what's going to hamper, you know, this NC State defense because you have to scheme a little bit different. Right. You have to either, you know, devote a spy or you're going to have to, you know, uh, you know, play QB contain with both of your dens. And with that being the case, that's going to be I think they're going to really struggle there. You know, the last time that they played a quarterback, whoever even semi mobile and Sam Howell, he ran it all over. Right. 18 carries, 98 yards, two touchdowns. That's a pretty good day at the office for Sam Howell on the ground. You know, and I think that, you know, DTRs gives you that kind of uh, mobility, if not even better. We saw him hurdle a guy in the USC game. So I think that's what puts me over the top for UCLA is DTR's ability to run because I know if I'm, you know, Dorian Thompson Robinson looking at that film against when they play North Carolina and watching Sam Howell run over their safeties. I'm licking my chops to just get out there and just see what I can do on the ground. Right. I'm looking, you know, the first time I, I decide to escape from the pocket, I'm not necessarily in. There's no fear that I would have in my heart after watching you get ran over by, you know, Sam Howe. Just to be perfectly <laughs> honest with you, right? Like that's just not something that I would be scared about. I'm like, look, you guys got ran over by, you know, a six foot white guy. I'm just, just gonna be perfectly honest with you. I'm not really scared here. I'm just gonna say, I'm just gonna say it all right, right? Like, it's just not gonna happen. So like, if I'm DTR, that's that's what I'm looking at, and I know, you know, uh, the confidence that he's gonna carry not only with his arm but with his legs in this game. So I've got UCLA uh, winning like a really good game, which I think might be one of the best games of the weekend. To be perfectly honest with you, or the week. To be perfectly honest with you. How dare you, Tim Tebow Jr. is great. So uh, no, we'll Sam Howell now? <laughs> no, no right, just cool. for that. Game. <laughs> Uh, but uh, let's go to now the guaranteed rate bowl, which is uh, might be the guaranteed worst bowl that we have here. Uh, West oh. Virginia versus Minnesota, Minnesota, a four point favorite 45 is the over here. Uh, this is going to be a slow, low scoring game. This is a game that I'll enjoy being a fan of an AFC North team. I love these, uh, you know, games that are 17 to 10 at the end here, but I know a lot of people don't like that. Um, Minnesota comes in with the, I think the advantage here because Letty Brown will not be playing this game for West Virginia. And he is a big chunk of that West Virginia offense, which they're not particularly fa fantastic on that side of the ball anyway, Nick. So is this uh, Minnesota in a walk or will West Virginia put up a fight? Uh, we have it as a, uh, pretty close to a toss up and, and Minnesota is, favored in our projections but we have it as fewer than two points instead of uh you know closer to four uh, we're obviously hoping for a little more higher scoring any uh, total in the 40s the way our model is constructed right now and and there believe me will be an overhaul of every uh, projection system that we have in in the offseason based on this year's results and, and kind of what we've learned but as of right now we can't get down below 45 and pretty much any game. Uh, so we're, you know, expecting a little bit higher scoring or at least rooting for a little higher, more higher scoring game. Our prediction is Minnesota to win 26, 24. I believe you I believe, uh, or excuse me, I, I agree with you. 
that were probably in store for a little more lower scoring game. So maybe, a, you know, 21, 20 type game, but hopefully it'll at least be exciting. Uh, but you're right. Yeah. Letty Brown not being there. We'll get to see a little bit more of Tony Mathis and, and Justin Johnson, but then we also might get to see Jarrett Diggy open it up a little bit. And, and, you know, West Virginia does have uh, a, a pretty solid receiver uh, group, Winston Wright Jr., Sam James, Bryce Ford Wheaton, Sean Ryan, all of them have had, uh, you know, a game where they've been, you know, the, the number one guy. They've had games in, in years past where they've stepped up and, and put together uh, some solid performances. So maybe without, you know, Letty Brown being a, a, you know, bell cow type running back for West Virginia, maybe we see a little bit more of, a, you know, leaning into uh, the passing attack. Uh, but, uh, you know, so far this year, there's not really a whole lot of evidence to suggest West Virginia is going to be able to line it up. They only rank 67th in passing offensive team performance, but believe it or not, even with Letty Brown, that's a little bit better than their rushing attack, which ranked 82nd. Minnesota defensively has been really solid. And so, uh, if, if West Virginia is one dimensional, whether it's, you know, really leaning into the past. Or, or not, uh, the signs point to Minnesota putting together a, a pretty, uh, you know, having some success, we'll say. Uh, Boy Mafe at, at uh, defensive end for Minnesota is a 100-rated player, player, probably the best overall player uh, that we expect to see in this game. But they've got, you know, a, a solid defensive line, even though they only rank 63rd in D-line performance rating you know, has been a, a big part of a unit that ranks 17th in defensive team performance, 22nd against the pass, 17th against the run. But will that Minnesota offense be able to, you know, put up a lot of, uh, uh, put up enough points and, and good numbers to be able to pull away in this game? Not so sure. Tanner Morgan wasn't all Big Ten quarterback in his past, but has really kind of slowed down a lot in uh, the the you know, last uh, year or two, Chris Altman Bell's been injured a lot of the season. He's already announced he's going to be coming back uh, next season for his extra year of eligibility. Um, hopefully, we get to see him a little healthier uh, in the bowl game than we have uh, leading up to it. The running back position is has dealt with injuries all year. Mo Ibrahim. Uh, lost in the season opener. Trey Potts, really scary situation. Sounds like he will at least be able to be at the game, which is which is a great sign. Um, don't expect him to play, but but uh, the wording of the release uh, was a, was a little iffy. I saw some other people speculating that maybe we'd see him on the field. I, I wouldn't be so sure about that. But you know, he was huge stepping in for Ibrahim in the uh, you know weeks after Ibrahim went down, but then they've missed him since basically the midpoint of the season. Bryce Williams also had a big game uh, stepping in then for Potts, and then he suffered a season-ending lower body injury. So now Kai Thomas is the go-to guy. Marquise Irving, number two. You know They've still been able to run the football pretty well. They only rank 66th in rushing team performance, but those running backs – have been productive. It doesn't seem to matter, you know, whoever's in there. And the offensive line ranks 44th in O-line performance. Not spectacular, but a solid unit, really experienced unit. Uh, and four starters in the 90s in our individual player ratings. The fifth, uh, an 80, 85 rated player. 
uh, Daniel Fahale might be the highest, you know, draft pick of all of them. Uh, just sort of the way we calculate things hasn't quite got up to those numbers yet. But uh, Minnesota, I understand why they're favored. They have been very cons- uh, inconsistent, have a couple of really head-scratching losses. Obviously, they lost to Bowling Green uh, in non-conference play, maybe the worst loss of any team this season. They also lost to Illinois uh, uh, and, and, and a game they weren't super competitive, had a 1% post-game win expectancy. But then they beat Wisconsin, who's been, uh, who was one of the hottest teams in college football in the second half of the season. Uh, and they, you know, put together a great performance in that game. So it, it's tricky for Minnesota um, to, to really, really trust them. But I can say the same about West Virginia as well. As I mentioned, the projection is is close. I mean, we see it as a virtual toss-up. So we're on West Virginia to cover that we do have Minnesota as a slight favorite. And as I said before, that that final score prediction, 26-24, probably a little too high scoring, but but that's what we've got right now. What do you think of this game, Xavier? West Virginia versus Minnesota in the steeped in tradition, guaranteed rate ball. <laughs> I, I mean, this is a tough. I think this game could end in about two hours and fifteen minutes because both teams want to run the air <laughs> off the football. That's first and foremost. Uh, if Muhammad Ibrahim was completely healthy, I'd say an hour and fifty, just because that's just how much he would get. To, you know, that's just how much he would get the ball. This right? game would be over in fifty-five minutes with an hour of gameplay if Muhammad Ibrahim was in this game. I think. <laughs> And him and Larry Brown would combine for 62 carries. That's just how it would happen. So, uh, but I think this is going to come down to like, like you said, uh, like you kind of alluded to, what team can run the football better? You know, West Virginia, for all intents and purposes, has not been a team that wants to throw the football down the field. Uh, they don't, you know, they're not necessarily a team that want to. And if they do, they'd like to do it off of their run game, right? They want to be able to get Larry Brown touches. He is their bell cow. He's the one who gets, who makes everything go together. Now, Jerry Decky, for for you know, for his credit, has thrown the football well down the stretch of the season, had a pretty good game against Texas, uh, had a pretty good game against Kansas as well, uh, in both games throwing three touchdowns. You know, he even had a solid performance, even in their loss the week before to Kansas State, uh, throwing for two touchdowns, even though he threw for two interceptions in that ball game. So they do trust him to throw the football. They just want, if, if he were to do so, they would want to do so off the back of Lady Brown and play action passes. So I, I think, and the same thing goes for Tanner Morgan. He has definitely, to what Nick said, has definitely taken a regression this year, um, which has been disappointing because I thought maybe this was the year that Minnesota could sneak up on some folks. Uh, and they just have not been able to do that due to the fact that obviously losing Ibrahim in game one, but also the fact that Tanner Morgan just has not been the guy that we thought he would. Uh, and, and so I'm going to go with, West Virginia in this game. I think that I, I believe, and I can't believe I'm saying this. I believe in Jared Deggy a little bit more than I believe in Tanner Morgan right now. I'll, I'll be perfectly honest with you coming into this ball game. I think Deggy, Scott perked up a little bit. That was funny. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I think Deggy coming into this game has a little bit more confidence and will is a little bit more of a passing threat than Tanner Morgan, which sounds so weird. Um, me saying all of this because of how well he's played down the stretch of the season. I mean, you just look at their overall numbers and Deggy. Uh, you know, blows Tanner Morgan out of the water, you know, 19 touchdowns to Tanner Morgan's 10, you know, 2,900 yards to Tanner Morgan's 1,900 yards. It's not even in the same ballpark. And so I'm going to go with Jared Deggie. I'm going to go with Letty Brown. I'm going to go with that West Virginia team. Now I feel like it's walking into this game with a little bit more confidence than a Minnesota team that's been up and down, up and down. Uh, And offensively in particular has really struggled in the passing game, which I think West Virginia 
is going to be able to cause them to do. We, we saw West Virginia do the same thing earlier in the year against Oklahoma, where they forced Oklahoma to be pretty one-dimensional in that ball game. And I think that's what West Virginia is going to try to do. They're going to try to make Tanner Morgan, uh, you know, in that offense, pretty one-dimensional. And I, and I think that's where you see West Virginia pull away because Tanner Morgan is not able to get it done uh, like he hasn't been able to do all season. Uh, we go to the Fenway Bowl, SMU versus Virginia. Virginia is a two-point favorite, 71 and a half. Uh, largest over, I think, in the bowl games this year, at least the ones we've talked about so far. Uh, SMU missing a couple big pieces on offense here, though. Um, Virginia missing a head coach and a couple pieces themselves. So what does this game boil down to, Nick? Who's going to win it? So I mentioned that in in the uh, guaranteed rate bowl that uh, we couldn't get quite down low enough to 45 similar for games in the 70s we just can't get up that high so we're definitely going to be under the 71 and a half uh but there are some reasons to think that even though these are two of the more explosive passing offenses in college football i i don't necessarily hate that you mentioned a couple of pieces missing for smu reggie roberson and danny gray starting wide receivers are both opting out of this game, preparing for the NFL draft. Uh, Virginia is also going to be without one of its starting wide receivers in uh, Billy Kemp due to injury. So, you know, maybe maybe that helps keep things a little lower scoring. And then you, you it's the Fenway Bowl, right? So uh, weather could be a little bit of an issue potentially as well. So I don't necessarily hate being under here, but, you know, Virginia – even with the coaching turnover, and they've actually already lost uh, their offensive coordinator, Robert Benet has, has left the program. Um, you still, this Virginia offense has been really, really fun to watch for a variety of reasons. They just do a lot of interesting and unique things, the way they utilize guys and, and you know, position, uh, flexibility, personnel packages, all kinds of good stuff. That offense has has been uh really explosive offensively brennan armstrong being the biggest reason why but they rank 11th in offensive team performance overall 11th uh passing offense 53rd rushing which is a little bit of maybe an opportunity for smu if they're able to to, to make virginia one-dimensional but virginia's defense i mean they rank 120th in defensive team performance triple digits both against the pass and against the run uh, you think that, you know, SMU is, is definitely going to have uh, they can they can make this a shootout. SMU, a little bit more balanced, even though they rank seventh in passing offensive team performance. Uh, they do have Ulysses Bentley at running back, who hopefully will be, you know, getting healthier and healthier each week. But Trey Siggers has, uh, you know, filled in quite well the transfer from North Texas uh, this season and, and gives them. Uh, you would expect a one-two punch there running back to maybe help offset uh, those losses of, of Roberson and, and Gray, but also SMU's got depth there as well. Rashi Rice has had a really excellent career. Uh, Grant Calcaterra at tight end. Uh, Jordan Curley, you know, is has got potential. Uh, and then Dylan Goffney in the second half of the season is a true freshman has really stepped up and, and uh, potentially maybe the, the next SMU player to know. The SMU defense against the pass, you know, is, is really, really struggled. They rank 115th in passing defensive team performance, but they've done a, a decent job stopping the run. They actually rank 34th against the run defensively, 75th overall, good bit better 
than Virginia, statistically speaking. Uh, but still, plenty of, of reason to think that Virginia is going to be able to put up points against this SMU defense. We see this game as a virtual toss-up, uh, only a, a half-point favorite, but we do have SMU actually favored to win this game. I don't, I don't love it, but if I uh, were to try to talk myself into it, there's a lot of instability, a lot of things going on. I mentioned the offensive coordinators are already left. There will be a, a new head coach coming in. And kind of a weird thing for Virginia, a lot of guys have already started to uh, test the waters of the tra transfer portal, including multiple starters. So I've, I've seen some conflicting things. I do believe that some guys who are in the transfer portal are still going to play in this game for Virginia. So it's possible that our projection uh, might be a little bit off on that, but it, it's not going to be enough for us to, to be on Virginia to, to uh, cover as a favorite, regardless of, of how we calculated it. But uh, anyway, so, so those off field things, the coaching staff things, the roster turnover, even though SMU is going through its own, uh, you know, coaching change as well. It just seems a little, a little more, you know, a little more unstable at Virginia. That 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 might just be uh, me again talking myself into it. Uh, but I, I think I think I like that we're on SMU in this one uh, to win outright. And our final score prediction is thirty four thirty three. Probably a little more higher scoring than that. But as I mentioned, we we can't quite get to the the seventies. Which chaos do you like better here, Xavier? Do you like the SMU chaos or the Virginia chaos? Which which one uh, do you think is going to be able to uh, rein it in and win? Virginia. I think this is a team that, uh, to be honest with you, I think Virginia is just one of those weird teams that come bowl season, they just find a way to get it done. Never know, understand how. You know, I, I still remember a couple of years ago where they gave Florida a game in the in the Orange Bowl, and you were like, "How? Like, like, how was this offense moving the ball against this top ten Florida defense? Like, it didn't make any sense." But Virginia is a team that can, for some reason, when it comes to bowl games, they just they they, they tie their laces and they get to go. I don't know. I don't know what to how to put it necessarily, but I feel like Virginia wins this game. I think it's going to be a boat race, personally. I think this is going to be an absolute shootout. I think neither team is going to want to stop either one. Uh, it's going to be very optional defense. So if you're an SEC fan who likes defense, don't watch this game. I'm just going to be honest with you because I think this game could easily be a, a final score of, you know, 42-49. I'll be perfectly honest with you because I think both offenses are that explosive and can be. Virginia has shown you multiple times this year that they can hit the 40-point margin. Uh, they've even done it in losses. You know, they gave up, you know, 66 to – BYU was 66-49 in that game in particular, where both where Virginia scored 35 points in a quarter. Like that's just how much they can, you know, that's how many points they can put on the board if given the opportunity. And this SMU defense is not a, a brick wall by any means, right? So I, I genuinely think Virginia, you know, and this game is going to come down to who can get the stop. Maybe not multiple stops. It might just be a stop. You know, it might be, hey, Virginia scores a touchdown right before halftime and SMU doesn't have enough time to go back the other way. It, it genuinely could end up being that kind of case, um, you know, and I genuinely believe that And then when the dust settles, I'm going to fall with uh, Virginia winning this ballgame. I think they're able, you know, they're, they're a little bit more talented. I think SMU's chaos, you know, lends them to be a little bit more susceptible to losing this ballgame. They've also lost three of their last four, so they may be reeling as a team a little bit right now. You know, like Nick said, a lot of guys, you know, just sniffing around the portal, right? 
you know, and, and you know, they lost, excuse me, lost four of the last five. The only game win that they have is against UCF, and that was November 13th. Other than that, they've lost, five, you know, their last, you know, four of their last five ball games. So I like Virginia a little bit more. You know, I, I think SMU right now is reeling a bit with, with Sonny Dykes leaving and things like that, or with Sonny Dykes coming in, or at least, yeah, with Sonny Dykes coming in and things like that, or leaving. Yeah, yeah, that was right the first time. Thank you, Nick. Um, with Sonny Dykes leaving. And, and I think, you know, opposite, you know, typically when a, when a program like this, you know, when loses a coach with P5 teams, I'm a little bit more, you know, excited for that to see how players play as far as it goes in an audition type space. For this, I'm a little bit more concerned because of the fact that they are mid-major and losing a guy like Sonny Dykes, who has been so impactful on that university, may have some some lingering effects in this bowl game. So I'm going to go with Virginia to win this game. All right, we move over to the uh, pinstripe bowl, Maryland versus Virginia Tech. Maryland's a three-point favorite. 55 is the over here, and uh, Tech might be the team most struck by uh, the transfer portal and players opting out and all that good stuff. So uh, Maryland surprisingly favored in this game, but after you hear the list, not very surprising, right, Nick? Yeah, this is the projection I probably hate more than any other. Uh, it makes absolutely no sense that we have Virginia Tech favored in this game um, because of the roster issues that you mentioned. I mean, Braxton Burmeister, starting quarterback, is in the transfer portal. Um, Trey Turner, top wide receiver, has opted out, leaving for the NFL draft. One uh, offensive lineman will not be there as well. Um, uh, Leishus Smith, I, I apologize if I've mispronounced the first name, uh, but he's opted out. Two others have already declared their intention to go to the NFL. Two starting defensive linemen, Amare Barno and Jordan Williams, will not be playing in this game. And starting corner, Jermaine Waller, also uh, will be out of this game. So, you know, that also, of course, Virginia Tech has been a very, very difficult team to trust this season. Six and six is a bit of a disappointment they will be going through a coaching change uh as well but somehow some way the way we calculate things um we do still have virginia tech as a half point favorite so it's technically a wrong team favorite situation for us the only reason to make myself feel a little bit better about that is that maryland has been equally frustrating at times and and you know disappointing here or there they were able to get over the hump get to a bowl game uh by snapping a, a three-game losing streak and beating Rutgers to end the regular season they've suffered quite a few defections as well not to the nfl draft but to uh the transfer portal but fewer high profile you know all the time starters will will uh you know they'll be playing without they do have an edge at the quarterback position talia tonga has had a solid season will make mistakes certainly and and you know doesn't always uh make decisions that that lead to positive outcomes but you have to think that you know he has been the full-time starter all year Probably gives them a little bit of a boost there. Uh, the receiver position, Rocking Jarrett, Daryl Jones, Brian Cobbs uh, are expected to play. Carlos uh, uh, Carrier has had uh, a big, uh, you know, had a huge game this year and and has potential, his flash potential. So I think their offense is a little bit more stable. And then defensively, the the starting lineup 
will remain intact, which is certainly an advantage you would think over Virginia Tech. But a lot of of depth and and some talented guys entered the transfer portal kind of in that second deep, uh, too deep, I should say. Uh, you know, makes Maryland maybe not not quite as as deep as as you might expect if you were just uh, cross referencing the the starting lineups there. But uh, Maryland defensively has struggled this year, 98th in, in defensive team performance. Uh, offensively, that passing attack has been been pretty good, 35th, but they've struggled to run the ball consistently and only rank 85th in, in uh, rushing team performance. But Virginia Tech, the, the team performance numbers are not spectacular. They're 76th both on offense and defense. No unit has been particularly terrible, although the rush defense ranks 98th. Uh, the pass – Offense 87th, um, but none has been spectacular either. The best has been the rushing offense that's ranked 50th. But uh, this, this, you know, even with the opt-outs, even with the guys leaving for the NFL, fairly evenly uh, matched, I think. It's just can't really trust either team. Would not shock me at all if one team blows out the other. And and based on just the the pure number of of uh, starters, basically that, that Virginia Tech's going to be without, it seems more likely than not that it would be Maryland. But some weird things happen in, in bowl season, so uh, it, it's difficult to say with a lot of confidence either that Virginia Tech won't win this game. So. It's it's uh, got the potential to be a close one. 29-28 our final score projection, but uh, surprisingly enough, we do have Virginia Tech coming out on top. What do you think, Xavier? You got Tech or you got Maryland? Yeah, give me the fighting Mike Loxley's. I'm, I'm going to take Maryland here. I'm going to take Talia. I think the I think what Nick alluded to with Talia being the starter all year is going to give a little bit of stability to a team that right now is reeling a little bit with guys entering the transfer portal. But I think Talia is due in for a good game. I think Talia, for all the hype he walked in this season with, he hasn't lived up to it, but I think he's due in for a game where he's, you know, reminds a lot of people, hey, I'm I'm a guy to really look forward to net coming into next season after what was, you know, an okay year, you know, but wasn't like, you know, maybe exactly, you know, maybe 30 touchdowns, you know, single digit interceptions, right? 24 touchdowns, 11 interceptions, pretty good season, right? And I think he'll build upon what he did at Rutgers at the last year game of the season, you know, 21 of 30, three touchdowns, a really good afternoon. Uh, and so I think Talia builds on that going into the offseason. And it makes him at least a guy that you look at next year as maybe a guy who, who can wiggle his way into the NFL draft as a day two, maybe a day three guy. So I've got Maryland here winning this game and, and led, led by Talia Tungabalo. Uh, the cheese it Bowl, much better than when I used to go to it here. Clemson Scott's versus favorite bowl. Iowa State. Yeah, way, way better now. Clemson, a <laughs> one-point favorite. 44 is the over-under, Nick. Who do you have in the cheese it Bowl? Uh, we've got Clemson. We've got Clemson winning in all three models. Uh, it is in all three agree, so... <laughs> this year i mean i've means, got clemson in this one too so well, well i don't know i don't know how i feel about that uh but uh but yeah so so clemson obviously disappointing compared to where we've seen them in years past but they, they've come on of late played pretty well in the second half of the season really quite well i mean 100 post game win expectancy in each of their last three games uh but there will be a transition here new coordinators on both sides of the ball for clemson will they be able to get to that 10th win 
will we'll, uh, you know, it should be a, a, a pretty, pretty good matchup. But similarly, Iowa State, a little bit disappointing. We were really high on Iowa State in the preseason. They lost five games, probably four more than we expected. Brees Hall will not be playing in this game. All-American running back. Uh, Brock Purdy is is uh, on his way out the door, his last game. So will we you know, really see that Iowa State offense let loose, see him throw the ball around a lot? Um, it's it's going to be difficult because Clemson, even though they were a bit of a disappointment this year, a lot of that was on offense. Defensively, they still rank in the top 10 nationally, sixth in overall defensive team performance, fourth running the football. It's just on offense, they rank 75th overall, 112th passing. So will we see DJ Uyangale, uh, you know, step up, maybe try to, to use this break uh, at the end of the regular season and, and leading in the bowl game to kind of – make it a, a, a fresh start, get ready for 2022. Will it be Iowa State sending all these seniors, really, really experienced roster off on a, a winning note? But the fact is, you know, with, without Brees Hall, and even though he's he's really the only one uh, big-time name who is opting out here, it, it still just kind of seems like, despite this being on paper, you know, one of the, the highest profile bowl games we've talked about, one of the best potential matchups. It's kind of it kind of seems to me like with the NFL draft opt outs and and I don't know, the, these games aren't don't get me as excited as, as the G5s have, if, if that makes sense at all, because it just is. I don't know. I'm losing my train of thought here. But anyway, Clemson, we have favored in this game by four and a half. I don't have a whole lot of confidence in it, even though it is in all three agree. Our final score projection is 28-24. That seems a little too high scoring, but with an over-under at 44, again, we just can't quite get that low. 24-20 does seem about right. Uh, we would be on Clemson to, to win and cover, but Iowa State, again, with all those seniors, maybe try to uh, you know use that outside influence and motivation as a factor. Seems like maybe they would – uh, have a position to, to win in that scenario by giving all those seniors a, a win on the way out the door. Uh, but again, we're on Clemson to win 28-24. Xavier, who do you have in the cheese it Bowl here, Clemson versus Iowa State? Clemson needs this win to show continuity with their university right now. I mean, you've lost literally everybody you can name outside of Dabo Sweeney. They need this game to be able to show that they're still a united front. And DJ Uyunglele needs this game, more importantly, to you know, show that he's the guy going into next year with Cade Klubinick uh, deciding to commit there this offseason. He needs to show that he can, you know, he's not just uh, going to roll over in the fall and he can use a really good game. On the Iowa State side, maybe you see Brock Purdy, you know, throw the ball 40 games for the first time in his career at Iowa State. And, and I, I would really like to see that. I would, I would like to see Brock Purdy go out with a bang. Um, you know how much I loved Iowa State coming into this year. I picked them to win the Big 12. You see how that worked out. Uh, but, you know, I, I would like to see them go out with a bang and beat a pretty good Clemson team that, barring the first, like, six weeks of the year, has bounced back pretty well, right? They finished 9-3. and three. Like, uh, for all hell that was breaking loose at Clemson this year, they still finished 9-3 and three, and I think beat both the – and beat the two – oh, no, and, and beat, you know, the breaks off Wake Forest, a team that, you know, obviously represented their side of the conference in the ACC championship game. So, as much as I want to go Iowa State, Clemson. Yeah, I mean, I'm going with Clemson, too. I just think the dominant defense uh, takes it here, but uh, yep. it should be a good one. 
Our last one of the day here, Alamo Bowl. Uh, the Alamo Bowl, it's number 14, Oregon, versus number 16, Oklahoma, which would be our first ranked-on-ranked uh, bowl action here. Oklahoma, a four-and-a-half-point favorite. 61-and-a-half is the over here. Um, this is going to be an interesting game. Both head coaches are gone. A lot of pieces missing on both sides, particularly on defense. I think my favorite bet is the over here, uh, which probably means Nick is on the under. So, uh, what do we, what do we have in the Alamo bowl, Nick, uh, Oregon versus Oklahoma? Well, I was, I was getting a little ahead of myself, uh, talking about like, oh, well, these teams, uh, just don't quite, uh, is this the same you know team in the in the bowl game as we saw in the regular season? I, I I should have saved that for Oregon versus Oklahoma because these are two teams very much in transition. Both uh, head coaches, of course, have, have left for other jobs. Both teams will be dealing with opt outs, guys leaving for the NFL draft. For Oregon, Kayvon Thibodeau, not a surprise. He's going to be one of the top two picks most likely uh, in that draft but they also lost a little bit more of a surprise Devin Williams uh, starting wide receiver uh, will not be playing in this game because he is off to the NFL early on in our, our very early discussion uh, Xavier mentioned CJ Verdell Oregon's been without him most of the season uh, they've leaned really heavily on Travis Dye at running back and then Anthony Brown has been able to fend off Ty Thompson at quarterback, but as we mentioned earlier in the show, has been quite inconsistent and, and certainly has uh, been a bit under fire from the fan base there just because Oregon has not been uh, really good at all uh, from what you would expect for a 10-win team throwing the football. They're ranked 69th in offensive passing team performance, and for a top-10 offense, uh, they ranked 8th overall offensively. Uh, you know, that that's a little bit of a surprise, but they run it quite well with Travis Dye. The offensive line has been a huge strength. They're actually number two in our O-line performance ratings this year. So that could be, should be a big strength and maybe the biggest reason for optimism for Oregon, because not only has Oklahoma defensively, uh, you know, struggled, certainly disappointed compared to my expectations. They ranked 54th defensively in team performance, 81st against the pass, 39th against the run. But Oklahoma will be, be, be playing without at least three uh, starters in that front seven. Isaiah Thomas, the defensive tackle, and then linebackers Nick Benito and Brian Asamoa have already opted out. Perry Winfrey, the nose guard, has announced he's entering the NFL draft, but I, I didn't see specifically whether or not he has opted out. So it could be four starters for that Oklahoma defense going up against that elite Oregon offensive line. Uh, could be a, a, a pretty difficult matchup there. Oklahoma, Caleb Williams, one of the best uh, you know, quarterback recruits we've seen in a while, five-star guy. A lot of the talk is going to be, will he return to Oklahoma with the coaching change? Uh, signs right now point to yes. So hopefully we'll get to see kind of uh, him continue to break out on a, on a national stage and, uh, you know, end his season on a high note and start the Brett Venables, uh, you know, era there at Oklahoma on a high note. Um, but, it's a difficult game to project because these teams are going to be so different, different coaches, a lot of missing players. Um, our projection is not much different than what the odds makers have. We do have Oklahoma favored, but by closer to a field goal than the four and a half. And then you mentioned you love the over, we're on the under, uh, but it's just by percentage points. I mean, we've got uh, 61 projected points compared to the 61 and a half 
uh, line that, that's currently posted. Our final score prediction is Oklahoma winning 32-29, but with so many unknowns in this one, I, I could see it going a variety of different ways. Right, yeah. I mean, this is going to be a weird game here for sure, Xavier. But uh, the Alamo Bowl, I mean, Texas is used to playing, you know, yep. somebody in this game. So uh, it's weird to see Oregon and Oklahoma in it, but eh, we'll take it. Right. And I think, honestly, you've got to go with Oklahoma here. I think that there's just a little bit more continuity on that roster as of right now, especially on both ends of the field. I think Caleb Williams is a guy who needs – we talked about guys that need a good game. We, Caleb Williams is a guy, regardless of whether he transfers or stays, needs a good game, right? He needs to leave a good taste in the mouth of all of the rest of college football, depending on whether or not he decides to leave or stay. I'm leaning on the side of him staying, but regardless, he needs that. you know. And when we look at the other side, Anthony Brown is – career is pretty much done at Oregon or at least to thought to be done at Oregon. And, and so, you know, at this point, you know, he could go out with a bang or he could, you know, go out with an egg. It really doesn't matter. His career is for the most part done. I just think from a defensive perspective, when you look at both teams, you're looking at, you know, uh, an Oregon team that's going to be missing out on a lot of their talent that's been carrying their defense thus far. And on the flip side with Oklahoma, it's a team that defensively that it, it, it was trying to get better as the year was progressing on. I just never reached where, you know, the heights that were, you know, we maybe thought early on in the offseason that they could have been after what we saw from the Florida game last year. Uh, but I like Oklahoma in this game. I like Caleb Williams over Anthony Brown. Once again, I think the quarterback play, there's a big gap in that play. I think when we're talking about quarterback, I think Caleb Williams is, an, is a guy who can not only run it, but throw it and sling it around. We've seen what we've done this year. Anthony Brown, on the other hand, is a little bit more one-dimensional in what he can do in the passing attack. So, Give me Oklahoma in this game. Give me an OU win. All right. Well, that is going to wrap it up for us. Just a shade under three hours, three hours. for uh, for bowl season number two. We'll be back with you next week to cover uh, the rest of the bowls. And then, of course, the following week to cover the national championship game. So uh, we hope you guys all had a great holiday season and happy new year and all that good stuff. Remember, you can follow us on the Twitter at CFB Winning Edge for Nick, at Xavier underscore Tristar I-C-H-E, and at Bogman Sports for myself. Have a uh, Merry Christmas. Merry Happy Christmas, New Year. Everybody. We will see you guys uh, next year. Dad joke, everybody. Uh, take it easy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to our Patreon supporters for keeping our show ad-free and for funding our wide range of college football analytics projects. Thanks also to Blake Austin for our theme music. To learn more about CFB Winning Edge, Visit patreon.com slash CFB Winning Edge or follow us on Twitter at CFB Winning Edge.